episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I was lucky enough to welcome not one, but two fantastic guests in the guise of maths teachers and, crucially for this episode, heads of department, Femi Adeniran and Matt Finley. Now, I've been wanting to do a deep dive on leading a maths department for some time now, and having listened to Femi and Matt on their fantastic Beyond Good podcast, subscribe to that if you're not already, I knew they were the guys to help me do it. As you'll hear, they're thoughtful, funny, and reflective. And I know that whether you're a current head of department, an aspiring one, or a teacher who's simply interested in the challenges a head of department faces, then this is the episode for you. I've also got a feeling that the issues discussed are relevant outside of our lovely little maths bubble, but I'll let you be the judge of that. So, what did we discuss? Well, over the course of nearly four hours, quite a lot, including how do you balance the need for consistency across your department with a desire for teacher autonomy? And straight away, me, Matt and, fin- um, me, Matt and Femi sorry, uh, disagree a fair bit on that one. Um, What are some examples of non-negotiables in your department? The next one's a biggie. What do departmental meetings look like? Um, How do you ensure good practice is shared around the department? How do you support less experienced colleagues, non-specialists and teachers who are struggling? Um, I really like this one. How do you deal with directives from SLT that you don't agree with? Likewise, what do you do to help non-specialists, particularly SLT, understand what the characteristics of high-quality teaching and learning in maths are? Um, How do you deal with difficult members of the department who are reluctant to make changes? How do you deal with parental complaints? How do you allocate sets? And a lot more. Now, (laughs) I've had yet another issue with Riverside, the recording platform that I use to um, host these podcasts, um, in terms of syncing up sound and audio. But if I can sort that out, I'll chop up some of the videos from our conversation and add them to the show notes page as usual. Just, But please just bear with me on this because it's been a flipping nightmare just getting the audio sorted. Um, I'll also try to add timestamps so you can jump back to parts of the episode you want to re-listen to. But just remember, if you're a Patreon subscriber paying to support this show for a small monthly donation, you'll already have access to an interactive transcript so you can search for keywords and do that right away. Now, just one more thing for me before we dive into this episode. Um, Just this last week, I wrote a newsletter about student participation in lessons. It's my current obsession, getting a sense of how many of your students are listening, thinking and understanding at various phases of the lesson. Now, in the newsletter, I shared an exercise that I do with maths departments that you can have a go at either on your own or with a colleague. And crucially, at the end of that newsletter, there's an anonymous survey to fill in that um, allows you to share where you think you're getting high participation from students at various phases of the lesson and where you're getting lower participation. Now, I'd be massively grateful if you could spare five minutes to complete that survey. And the reason is I want to identify which areas of lessons teachers feel they need most support in when it comes to student participation so I can offer some suggestions. So the link to the newsletter is in the show notes. Thanks so much for that. 
Anyway, I know what you're thinking. As ever, shut up, Craig. Let's get on with the show. Okay, let's get cracking then. Um, enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I'll see you on the other side. Well, it gives me tremendous pleasure to invite not one, but two wonderful guests onto the podcast this week. We've got Matt and we've got Femi. So I'm going to come to you first, Matt. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, Craig. Thanks so much for having us. It's an honour to be here. Um, I'm Matt Finney. I'm Head of Maths and uh, SLT for the last six years. I've been teaching just about 12 years now uh, in secondary, um, secondary school and A-level. Um, and I'm part of the Beyond Good podcast, which I co-host with Femi to my right here. Lovely stuff. And I will stick with you, Matt, for this. So let's do math speed dating. Uh, what's your favourite number and why? Yeah, I think I'm very sad or I'm a very boring southerner, maybe, but I don't really have a favourite number. <laughs> oh, no, here we go. One of these. <laughs> <laughs> nothing at all. Nothing at all. I, I like the number seven. There's something about it. It's very hard for me to explain why. It's, it seems like a powerful number. Uh, got maybe it, got it's it. the All right. primeness um, of it. <laughs> nice. Uh, what was your favourite uh, topic in maths as a student? Um, I was thinking about this. I, I, I remember loving learning to rearrange equations. And, and after being taught that, going around for about a week, trying to get hold of any equation I could so I could just rearrange it. Um, so that, that <laughs> I remember that one stands out. But I, I did enjoy maths at school. It was one of the few things I actually enjoyed. That was a good one. Um, and if you were not a teacher, what kind of job would you like to do? Well, uh, in, a, in a different life, you put me down for MotoGP rider, please, uh, or something like that. But um, I think in, in this life, uh, I, I love working with people. I've come to that conclusion, having worked with computers. Uh, I prefer people. I find them you know, challenging and rewarding. Um, and so I, I think working with adults, I'd like to do a lot, something along the lines of coaching with adults, which um, I find when you're working with people, there's a real impetus for personal growth comes along with that. So that's that's where it's at for me. Lovely stuff. Now, we're going to be talking um, about running a department. So feel free to frame this uh, the answer to this around uh, head of department, but anything you want, really. What's your favorite failure, Matt? Something that didn't go according to plan, but you learned something from the experience. Oh, God, there's so many. <laughs> it's like, where to start with that one? Um, I think uh, I, one that really sticks in my mind is when I early days of being a head of department, coming in and rewriting the scheme of work, uh, you know, producing a new scheme of work. And, and in, in fairness, that needed doing. Um, and I believe I did a reasonable job of it. But what I completely failed to account for was that the existing scheme of work was the product of the hard work of, mm. of someone who was already there. And I sort of trampled <laughs> all over that without, you know, it, it didn't even cross my mind and it, it did upset them. And um, they had to after they started talking to me about three weeks later again they they pulled me aside and explained exactly why it had upset them and and rightly so so i i learned a lot from that experience wow that's that's a good one that dynamics in maths departments always fascinate me so i was in a school last week 
and there was the head of maths and within the department was still the previous head of maths who'd been moved up to SLT and the head of maths before them. So you had two former <laughs> head of maths and the head of And I was thinking this is going to be an absolute disaster waiting to happen. But I mean, I was only there for the day. They seemed to all get on well and the dynamic was fine. But yeah, whenever you come in somewhere new, yeah, being aware of what's gone on before, particularly the work that's gone into it, yeah, is a, is a really important one. That's a good one. That's a good one. Right, Femi, let me turn to you now. Regular listeners may uh, may remember you from your uh, appearance on the Tips for Teachers podcast. So let's uh, let's reintroduce you anyway. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Femi, and I am currently head of maths in a large uh, independent school. Um, that's after being head of maths in a large inner city school for four years. And then before that, a number of roles, um, second in maths, a maths teacher and a couple of other schools. Love it. Right. Speed dating, Femi. Uh, Favourite number and why? Well, like that, I mean, I'm not sort of, it was quite hard to come up with something on this, but I, I did think about number 51. Because to uh, to a, a child in a middle set math class or something, it seems like it should be prime. But of course, it's not prime. Um, so you can include it with things like if you're trying to factorise quadratics or... Um, Put up to prime factors and it often makes me think oh you know it's prime and then of course you've got 17 and 3 so yeah i like i like 51 for that reason you can throw it in and cause a few problems sometimes good answer never had 51 before love it um favorite topic in maths as a student well i can remember so you, so you know how in your life you've got some things that you remember vividly from your from your early years i can vividly remember being sat in a math classroom with a guy called mr herbert who was not a math teacher he was actually a PE teacher I think he had a bad back or something. It was those times when it just they went they went into math teaching. Uh, also coached a bit of rugby, which I loved. And I can remember some old dusty textbook just doing um, solving large, long, messy linear equations. And he'd make you uh, line up at your, at his desk because obviously he wasn't going to move. <laughs> um, and he'd sort of line up there, and he'd take his pen, and he'd go tick 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 tick. Right, good, all correct because he had the answers in front of him. Right now, go do the next ten, and we were just we were just loving it because he, he ran the room well. He was a big personality. He taught it well, and we were just getting instant success. So um, yeah, I just enjoyed that, and still 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 do. Nice. And uh, what would you like to do, Femi, if you weren't a teacher? Well, I think um, even though I don't have the qualifications or the skill to do it, it's got to be um, England rugby head coach. Um, <laughs> you get to travel the country watching games of rugby and talking to. Head, you know, directors of rugby, you pick the England team, you're at all the games, you uh, go off to World Cup fight, World World Cup tournaments and that sort of thing. And I'd love to be in the, in the inner, in the inner, you know, working as a bit of, of the England rugby squad. But I couldn't because there's only one role and I wouldn't get the job. <laughs> you can only dream, Femi. You never know, this, this appearance may open a few doors. Yeah. Who knows, who knows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what about a favourite failure? Again, could be head of department related or anything. What are you going for? I think no doubt the favourite failure for me and the one that I still think about a lot and it's it's helped me react to certain situations I've had recently is a colleague, and I can say this now because I no longer work at that school, a colleague we had in, in a school, well, and I was head of department in another school, who wasn't really producing the goods in the department in terms of um, less behaviour, outcomes, um, general kind of command of the classroom, and just as a new head of the department, just not doing enough about it. And, 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 you know, she was a bit of a difficult character sometimes and would often kind of be quite defensive whenever anything like this was raised. Quite a lively personality in other aspect areas, but not necessarily when it came down to talking about, you know, your lessons and the kids. 
and we just didn't do enough about it. And it ended up with me having to take a, a top set year 11 class off her in, uh, it was actually the COVID year. So I, I took them off her in January of that year. Now they never ended up taking their exams. We didn't know that was going to happen. And it was quite messy and quite nasty. And there were lots of tears. And I can remember just thinking, this wasn't sorted out when it should have been. And so now we're having to try and represent the children by changing the teacher. But actually, if we'd be more decisive and less affiliative, we would have been having these conversations earlier down the line. And she actually said to me something very interesting. She said, it's not your fault for me because I made it incredibly difficult for you to do that. And she did. But that's, that's, that doesn't mean it wasn't my job to do so. So it's a failure and it's a tough one. And I see it happening all the time in schools. People being reluctant to really challenge this stuff. And it taught me a lot. Wow, that's an interesting one. And I think we're going to dig in later on to kind of relationships and supporting teachers who are struggling and so on. That's that's a great one, Femi. Love it. Love it. Right. So um, as listeners will be aware from the intro, the main focus of today's discussion is going to be on leading a department. It's something that I've been requested loads of times over the years and it's uh, for, for, for one reason or another it's never felt like quite the right time to do it but then I'm a big fan of your guys podcast and I know that you're heads of department yourself so this felt like the right combo of people to do it the right time to do it so we're going to do a big old deep dive and uh, just before we dive into my questions do you want to just give listeners a bit of a sense of your guys kind of relationship how, how do you know each other and um, have you worked together before how's the how and how did the podcast come about yeah that's a that's a great point so we we worked together in uh, the same school uh, about, well, 12 years ago, I suppose, for f- about four years, yeah, overlapped. Yeah. Um, so Femi had, was an established teacher. I'd been working in engineering and come into teaching uh, as a GTP, his graduate training programme. Uh, and Femi became my sort of unofficial mentor, really, um, and took, took me under his wing. And uh, so I got my, got my education that way through him and a couple of other key key people and then we stayed in touch as 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 he moved on and moved on to become second in department in another school and then head of departments we stayed in touch and I moved on subsequently to become head of department as well so we 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 were often facing the same problems you know around the same time and so we would have long phone conversations or go watch rugby games and take take the long route there so that we could have plenty of time in the car to to discuss you know what we were what we were learning and what we were struggling with um and the podcast was really just born out of that it was sort of just one day i don't know a year and a half ago saying yeah maybe we should record some of these conversations and um what well, that's what we started doing really is we've we've tried to be true to that um and and we're we're just trying to figure out the answers to the things we're we're facing as we as they come up what, what I loved about working with Matt in those early years and it was a it was a bit of a coaching relationship then it's, it's, it's obviously not that now um was that he'd always asked the, the what I class as the big questions so even as a week two week three teacher he'd say things like I had a class today the lesson was going well it's now a lesson and they they just kind of ran out of steam with 10 minutes to go and I just couldn't get them over that 10 minute you know those last 10 minutes which is quite difficult and what would you do about that? And I always thought that's 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 the real stuff, isn't it? That's the stuff that's happening across the country every day. Um, and he wanted to get really to the crux of what was really going on in the classroom. Whereas I find that sometimes in the in the teacher training route, it's too much about kind of forms and getting signed off in this and that. And I, he wasn't interested in that. He wanted to know how to be a really effective teacher. 
which is what I love talking about. Now, now those conversations have gone on to become how to be an effective leader, head of department, in his case, SLT. But it's always been those those big questions about the real crux of the job that's, that's led to some really interesting discussions. Love it. Fantastic. Right. Okay. Let's dive in. So a bit, bit of background for you, you both. So I've never been a head of department. I've never had any interest in being a head of department. I, I don't think you could pay me enough money to, to, to be a head of department. For the reason, the reason would be, it just seems like a massive hassle to me. And it seems like all the fun stuff of teaching is just taken off you and you spend less time in the classroom and blah, 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 load of admin, load of hassle. And it just, just doesn't appeal to me um, at all. Now, I'm very interested. I've got some specific questions related to that as we go through, but I'm, I'm interested. First thing, was this always the plan for you both? I'll start with you, Matt, here. Did you always want to be a head of department? Was this always the kind of route that you, you saw your career going? Um, not really. Well, yes, in the sense that... Um, if the career was going to progress, it would be down the academic side rather than the pastoral side. Um, I enjoyed being a tutor. I enjoyed being a tutor, but uh, it, it was always it was always more intuitive to me to think about maths and teaching and teaching and learning um, and pedagogy than than the pastoral side of things. But but no, in the sense that I didn't set out with any particular ambitions. I I came into teaching because I I sort of fell into it and I I discovered I loved it. And then there was a tremendously challenging learning curve, and I loved that. And I was um, trying to climb that every day. And when the learning curve is very steep, you can you can see your progress. It's it's hugely rewarding. So although I was taking a battering five times a day off, you know, not especially challenging sort of fifteen year old kids, um, it it was it was incredibly rewarding. So as that learning curve smoothed out a bit I'm not saying it um, ever leveled off but as it smoothed out a little bit I think I was drawn to um, what's the next what's the next step what's the next challenge uh, and also Femi had gone ahead so he I was watching him and his trials and tribulations uh, and thinking ah maybe I, I'd like a go at that so it was some something along those lines for me how many years had you done that before? What what was your kind of, did you go second in department first? And if so, after how many years? Just, yeah. just plot us out a little bit of a timeline. Yeah, so I think I did five years of um, classroom teacher. And then I had a year of second in department, or maybe possibly two actually. And then I was looking for a head of department jobs and I got one uh, then after six six years. Got it, got it. Same question to you, Femi. Um, did, was this always the plan? And again, if you can just share your kind of uh, career career timeline with us well, as well. I mean, I think the first thing to say is it, it, it is a massive hassle, right? Yeah. But I know that, I know that taking an analogy, I know that you're a dad, for example, right? Young children. That is also a massive hassle. Correct. But but but, but what you get back from it, in, in my view, outweighs the, the, the massive hassle that it is. So it is definitely easier just to sit as a nice classroom teacher your kids, your timetable, that's all there is. But but the hassle, in my view, leads to greater rewards than, 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 it, than it creates. And I think that's that's how I look at it. So I did um, a year as an unqualified teacher in a really tough inner city school where I went as a maths TA. And then the classic thing, recruitment, we haven't got anyone. How do you fancy teaching some <laughs> classes? I'm completely unqualified. Definitely my hardest year in education, including all the years as head of department, harder than those. Um, then I did, did a year, then I did my training there, the old GTP, train on the job. Uh, and then I went and did five years back to back, just classroom teacher, nothing, no responsibility, not second, not in charge of anything, just teacher. And they were invaluable. And, and, and I still, mm -hmm. you know, going off topic a little bit, but I still 
sometimes in my, well, actually all the time, question when I see people who are 18 months in, 12 months yeah. in, I should be leading the department, I should be head of the department, I've got no results behind me, I've got no experience of taking a class through from a year nine to a year 11, but I should be, I'm going for it. I just, I don't, I don't get that. Uh, so yeah, for me, five years back to back, just classroom teacher. And the reason why I wanted to do it, it was quite interesting actually, it was when I got to that point, and I think listeners will have had this, some of them, when you begin to see people who you're not necessarily sure about who are going for this stuff, and you think, well, if we're now moving into a position where these guys are going to be leading, then I need to throw my hat in the ring as well. It, it wasn't necessarily that I thought I was going to be outstanding. It was almost just like, you know, I better get involved in this, otherwise I'm going to end up, you know, being led by people who actually possibly... I, I not that I should be leading, but I could definitely be involved in the role that they're going for. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring and get involved. And uh, did that tentatively with us. I, w- I was second in maths, responsible for year eleven outcomes. That's all my role was in, an- in another school, not the one I was in. And loved it. You know that was my thing. I was just year eleven guy. I taught two year two year eleven classes. I ran all the intervention for year eleven. I used to go around year eleven lessons and observe and give feedback. And it came quite easily to me and that's when I started thinking about right next head department next is this so it was that was that little initial start that got me going really it's, it's really interesting that the, the time thing and just again just to go off off topic a little bit here um the we know there's a big recruitment crisis you, you if you if you can count to 10 you've a decent job again chance of getting a, a maths job at, at the moment and what I see a lot and you guys will see the same thing you see talented teachers maths teachers in their first couple of years of teaching they could they could have their pick of certainly second in department jobs if not head of department jobs yeah and i i coach a a, a young teacher at the moment uh, rebecca and i was having a chat with her a couple of weeks ago and she's really good she's one of the best i've seen and she's yeah. in her second year of, of teaching and i've said look tell me to mind my own business here but if i was to give you any advice just get your teaching sorted first because as soon as you start taking on extra responsibility and we'll talk more about this later you, you invariably come out of the classroom more and it's your best chance to get your teaching to a decent level when yeah. that's the main thing you've got to think about and yet it's it's tempting isn't it like as you as for you say femi you see people going for these jobs and you know perhaps you're better than them or on the same level as them you see friends being promoted left right and center you know you could go for that too it's very hard to have that discipline and obviously everyone's financial circumstances are different it's very hard to say you know what i'm going to spend like you guys i'm going to spend five years just honing my classroom teaching because i know it's going to set me up for the future versus Actually, there's a eight grand pay rise here if I take this job, yeah. reduce timetable, blah blah blah. It's, it's tough, isn't it? it? It's very tough, and and one of you know I've I've been I've been in that exact situation, and I had the good fortune in retrospect to have someone, um, you know, an an assistant head, um, who'd been teaching thirty five years, who had my back, and he pulled me in, and he said, you know, when I started to make noises about looking for heads of department jobs after maybe. I don't know, four years or three or four years or something. He said, "No, you know, don't you 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 you're not good enough yet. You need to get your feet, keep your feet under the desk, and get your classroom teachers sorted. You know, make sure you've taken year groups all the way through. You, know, you need more experience as a tutor. You need more experience working with staff around the school, dealing with SLT. Like you, you'll thank me for it. And um, just you know, when someone has the courage to say that to you, you know that they've really got your back." Yeah. Um, and it was it was great advice, really paid off. It, it is great. It, it reminds me a little bit of having like a, a 12-year-old daughter 
who's quite mature and she can kind of make her own tea and make her own bed and she can kind of tidy up around the house and it's quite sensible and then just sort of saying, right, well, I think you should move out and <laughs> get your own place. <laughs> you can do all the all the, all the things that are requ- required to, to, in, a, in, a, in a flat. So just, why don't you just get on with this? No, there's still, she'll, she'll be more, she is mature and she is sensible, but she'll be better when she's 18. <laughs> and for that reason, you know, get get better first. We do see a lot of very talented people. Um, and, I, and I think the worst, the worst you, you see is when you see somebody who is very good and is very talented and, you know, they've gone up the chain at no SLT or, or no assistant head or head of department very early and they come in and they you know, bang their uh, files down the desk and start ranting about this is wrong and that is wrong and, uh, and you think that some of this, some of this, not all of it, is possibly because you, you, you've got to a point too quickly without, without the, the mastery that's required to do this wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, wait, you know, if you are starting quite young in your 20s, you're hopefully going to work through and be part of the English education system through to your you know, 60s, possibly even 70s, the way things are going, there's plenty of time. And uh, I'll tell you, well, we're not going to get through any questions here. So uh, you keep saying interesting things that I want to keep keep picking up on. So I'll, I'll, I'll do one more if that's okay. Um, this is something I've been thinking about a lot um, recently. Like, this is the most obvious thing you've ever heard in your life. I think your head of department needs to be a strong teacher, but they need to be particularly strong, right? Because... Yeah. They've got to be able to drive initiatives forward. They've got to be the people who, who model this whatever new idea or the good practice and so on and so forth. So if you're going to be head of department, you're almost obliged to get your teaching to a decent standard because there's no hiding place, right? And I, I've, again, without naming names, I've seen this a fair few times um, in schools I've been working with this year where the head of department... <laughs> I don't know, it's difficult. And the head of department saying, all right, we need to be using mini whiteboards more. We need to be better with our formative assessment or whatever. But I'm thinking, well, you're not doing it. You're not doing it to the standard that's, that's required. So firstly, who are, you, who are your team going to learn off? And secondly, why, why should they listen to you? It's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Would, would that be fair? Like, I mean, it's obvious you've got to be a strong teacher, but you'd have to be particularly strong to be head of department. Would you agree? I, I think so. I, I'd say two points on that. And one for me, the benchmark for me was, I felt I would not be ready to be a head of department until I could be teaching any class in the school and have the three worst students in the school sent and parked to me from another (laughs) classroom and not disrupt that lesson. And that was sort of the benchmark I wanted to get to before I felt, you know, right, I'm going to be there. Because I wanted to be able to go to my team and say, "I I don't want any student to disrupt lessons. And I want you to feel absolutely empowered to to park them and you send them straight to me no matter what. No excuses, not, oh, I've got, I've got bottom set nine, so maybe not that lesson. No, you send them to me, whatever happens, and, and it won't impact the, the, the kids that I'm teaching. So that's that's the benchmark for me. And then the, the second element is, you know, for just from personal experience, I remember one of my, one of my team, when I was in my, my first head of department, role here said um he said to me oh in all my years of teaching i've seen all these initiatives and people say these things that you're supposed to do and you know do this and do that but i've never i've never really seen people actually do it you're the first person who's actually doing the things that you say we need to be doing and it's almost like that that was the norm for him and so um and and you see that i see that a lot you know see see emails and directives come around from 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 every level uh, of school, uh, initiatives that people have have taken on board, and then 
the question is, can you do this? Are you doing this in your classroom? You know, you're asking people to differentiate, but when I pop into your lessons, I don't see any. So there has to be that kind of um, authenticity, I think, to, to what you're asking people to do. And, and I think to a certain extent, sometimes the, the craft in the classroom is not given enough um, strength at interview for roles of head of department, assistant head or whatever. You sort of see it, you know, we all go on the test and have a look at what jobs are out there for a head of department or assistant head teaching learning. And I quite often see just like quality of teaching. It's been, been quite low down the list, you know, has experience with driving forward whole school culture. Well, okay. <laughs> what about ability to drive that forward in their own classroom? Is that actually on your on your list of things that, that, that you're interested in? Um, so I think some people begin to understand the system and realise that actually these things aren't the things they're looking for. I've led something whole school because I led on I led on whole school healthy eating week, so I can put that on my on my CV, and that's going to mean mean that I've led on whole school things. That's going to be more that's going to be more um, respected than somebody who's got outstanding results for five years in a row. And I think that's our fault sometimes, you know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, right, I, I'm interested in the kind of practicalities of being a head of department. So I wonder, we'll start with you, Matt. Can you just talk us through your timetable? What's your kind of teaching time versus kind of non-contact time? And what are you doing in that non-contact time? Um, okay, so we have hour-long lessons and there are 25 of them a week. We work on a fortnightly timetable, so there's 50 lessons. Now, I'm also on an SLT, so I have uh, a whole bunch of other responsibilities so my teaching load is at about 30 hours out of the 50. Now, uh, that's also complicated by the fact, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, um, that we've had, uh, you know, some long-term absence. So, so staffing, which is going to be an issue for lots of people, um, and as a consequence, you know, I've taken on more hours. Um, so it varies between, I think it, it, it's supposed to be something like 26 for me. Um, and it varies between 30 and 34 or 35, depending on kind of cover and supply. Um, in terms of that non-teaching time and what I'm doing with that, it was interesting to reflect on that. And I think about 50% of that is um, what Femi would call walking the shop floor. So being out and about around the school, um, either in my department, popping into lessons or around the school. So a lot of my a lot of my non-teaching time is on um, allocators on call. Um, so if I'm not picking up students, I'm I'm wandering around, popping into lessons around the school, seeing what's seeing what people are up to, um, or talking to staff and having sort of professional conversations. Uh, and those could be pedagogical based, or they could be, you know, about set changes or something like that. Um, Twenty-five percent of my time I'd probably spend on my own stuff, preparing my own lessons, marking. You know my own books. Uh, I do video solutions to assessments for my groups. Um, that's quite time-consuming. Uh, and then probably the other twenty-five percent is is admin things, and that might be responding to parents, responding to staff, arranging you know uh, things like setting up uh, the procedure for mock exams. Who's invigilating? Which staff do I need? Where? Uh, it, it, it all sorts of admin tasks that just rear their ugly heads and are needed really for the smooth running day to day. Does that give you the gist of it? it certainly, yeah, it certainly does. Is, would it be a similar story for you, Femi? So me at my school, there are 60 lessons in a, in a fortnight. Uh, a normal classroom teacher would teach 50 of those. 
head of department should teach 40. So you'll see four fifths. I actually at the moment have to teach 50. So I teach the same as a normal teacher. The reason for that is um, we, we've had a member of staff go on to maternity and we were able to recruit a good guy, an unqualified teacher in to, to take her classes, but, but not somebody who I wanted to give you 11. Just straight up, here you go, you're unqualified, here's your 11. So I then do the year 11 part of that as well. So I'm teaching the same as a normal teacher and also being, being head of department. Um, hopefully next year, I'll go down to 40 and have that extra time. But that's, that's how things are at the moment. Um, it's really important, isn't it, that you can look those kids in the eye on results day and know that we, we, we did the best by you. It's nothing to do with the fact that I work in independent school and they're paying. and nothing to do with that. I'd do the same as if it was a state school. We've got to be giving you guys the best chance. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I deliberately did the timetable so that when she went on maternity, if we couldn't recruit somebody top quality, which, let's face it, it was, it was likely, I knew I could step in and take those year lessons. Um, have you both noticed a, a shift there that you're having to teach more as a head of department to say three, four years ago or whatever? Are, are you really noticing the kind of recruitment and retention crisis playing out in your own timetables? I think that I've, I've, I feel like I've been quite lucky up to this point in that um, I came into a, you know, I made the point when I, when I was interviewed actually to the, to the head uh, you know, we're talking about the quality of, of maths teaching, and I sort of made the point. Well, you've got we've got four at that time, four full time specialists. We've got no non specialists teaching maths. That puts us ahead of most yeah. schools in the country. Now the situation is even more dire now, and, and we actually managed to build the team, and we had five and then six of us, and and grow the grow the department. But um, then we had we were hit by some long term absence. And then we've just really struggled since then to recruit. So it does feel uh, like even just the number of people applying for positions has gone down and down and down to at times we've had adverts out with, with one or no applicants, yep. you know, one or no serious applicants. So it, it does seem like it's getting worse, but I wouldn't say in my career has ever been a situation where I've had a pile of good CVs on the desk and I can just call up the next person in waiting to 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 come and you know take a position at the school yeah it's interesting it's interesting you say that um two things spring to mind there i mean 2009 i went to the school that i met maths in as an applied for it off the tes normal um maths job nothing special in the advert applied for it and i went along january it was and it was a normal interview day there was five of us five of us suited and booted all ready to go, all wanted the job. Yeah, that little bit you have in the in the waiting room where you're all trying to suss each other out and you know, well, how long have you been teaching? And what do you you know, all that and all that. And then I, you know, taught my lesson and we we're all, you know, you'll be teaching year eight top set, you'll be teaching year eight second set, you'll be teaching all that. And then the interview with the head and, and a chair of governors was there and I got, got the job and I can remember um being called into the head's office for the sort of uh, we'd like to and seeing the other four all walking out. So they'd all been told, obviously, they had me, and just thinking, yes, got it. You know, it, those, those days are gone. I see, yeah. I see now that on Twitter, people put things like, anyone looking for a job in Dorset? They think, no one's looking for a job. <laughs> Everyone's got one or has, has got offers. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it, is, it, is, it is difficult, isn't it? It really is difficult. It really is. And just, just picking up on two points here. So one, one, but I think both points we raised earlier. So a school that I'm um, doing some departmental support in, They've been advertising for a director of maths and I think they've put it out to advert three times now. And they 
we we've talked about this with the with the member of SLT who's in charge of maths, the deputy head. They're not they're not that bothered if they. I mean, ideally they'll have been head of maths before, but they they need a strong teacher first and foremost. They need somebody who can improve teaching and learning within the department. But they can't they can't recruit. Like it's as I say, it's gone out three times. It's it's good money. Like it's you know it's top of the scale and just no nobody's going for it so yeah. it's it's not even kind of main scale jobs that people are struggling so is that for. is that role is that role above the head of maths that'd be a head of maths yeah. as well were there yeah yeah, yeah. So that's interesting isn't it that's interesting and they don't and they don't even want a <laughs> so you're gonna you're gonna be above the head of maths but we but you don't need to be the head of maths you know i i'd, I'd say there i mean i'm not sure i don't know anything about the school but you know be, be careful with looking after what you've already got you know yeah, because yeah, yeah. Presumably they've got a head of maths there already who's, who's you know, functioning and running the department. So I, I know that tactic has been used by a number of schools, but I, mm. I think it needs to be done with some care. Well, the, the other no. thing that's pernicious about this is, the, is that the race to offer additional responsibility or roles or, 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 or um, you know, status, let's say, in order to attract people in... Um, when they actually don't necessarily deserve or have the the competency for that status, and you see that increasingly, I understand why schools do it, but what it means is that you're increasingly getting less experienced or less effective practitioners coming into more and more influential roles, um, mm. just mm. just to attract someone, you yeah. know. And and also the the other thing is that the schools are getting people in because they need teachers. You know, so you have a director of maths, but that person's job presumably will be a reasonably heavy teaching load. It won't be to float around yeah. making sure that, you know, coaching and developing stuff and leading on. It might be those things, but probably what the school really needs is just more teaching hours. Yeah. Um, and that's that's you know, it concerns me. And I don't I don't blame the schools at all. You know, it's what do you make, Craig? And this is a question question for you of, of the kind of structure you've got in many schools. Yeah. With often with people sort of saying, "Well, yeah, I'm hi there, I'm Tom, I'm assistant head data, <laughs> and I'm on more money, a lower timetable than a head of maths who has got a direct results pressure of their own classes and the whole department. They've got potentially a pastoral pressure because they may well be a head, head of uh, sorry a, a tutor as well, yep. and, a, and a higher higher teaching load." And a lower salary. I wonder whether we've got. A, well, no. Go on. What do you make of that? Yeah, you, you see it so much these days. Um, again, so when I go into schools, it's it's bizarre the people who I'm kind of dealing with. It's that there's <laughs> I've been in meetings where there's kind of five people. And they're all got some kind of leadership role within maths, but I'm not talking here kind of second in department ahead of key stage three. I'm talking they're all senior leadership on on varying, you know, with, with varying responsibilities. And it's, it, it is crazy, but you, again, it, it comes back, we, we know why they do it. They do it to retain these these members of staff to, to keep the teachers. It's the sole reason they do it. When um, in my school, one of my former schools, I saw the kind of early days of this, whenever you would be a strong main scale teacher and you'd think, you know what, I probably want to move up. So I'm going to apply for a job elsewhere. Next thing you'd be called into the head's office and you'd come out and you'd got some made up TLR about something to do with Excel or something like that. It was just, and that was the kind of early, early days of this. Yeah. And now I think because schools are struggling to recruit so much, it's gone to the extreme where you're, you're on SLT before you know it with, as you say, some kind of responsibility for whatever it may be, timetabling, but you don't have those same pressures of the head of maths. And it can make for a really toxic environment because yeah. what often happens, and I see this firsthand, is I'll come into a school to do some departmental support 
and I'll say, right, okay, we'll do some lesson drop-ins during the day. And then in the afternoon, we'll get all the maths team together and we'll do some CPD based on what I've seen that morning. And then all of a sudden, four members of the department aren't in that CPD because they're members of SLT and they've got an SLT meeting or they feel they're a bit above this and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I'm working with teachers. I'm working with kind of 50% of the department and, yeah. you know, the rest of them just aren't there. It's, yeah, it's, it's bad. It's really, really bad. It is yeah. bad. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Anyway, so um, there are a number of reasons why head of department wouldn't be for me. One of them is I think your teaching invariably suffers. I think that your teaching has to fall down your priority list. Now, we've talked before about how it's important to get that kind of base level of teaching there. But I made a conscious decision that I wanted to keep improving my teaching. That well, I want that to be the sole focus um, for me and improving the kind of teaching of others. And I didn't want to get bogged down in dealing with parents, dealing with SLT, blah, 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 blah. So can you guys say hand on heart that your teaching doesn't suffer as a result of being head of department? Well, uh, I, I'll push back a little bit, I think. <laughs> Go on, for it. On, on, maybe not on that directly, but on one of the things you said, which is, the implication that once you shift your focus to being all the head of department stuff, that your teaching no longer develops. And I would say, you know, my teaching in the last six months has been as, as good as it's ever been. And I think in part that's because uh, of having to think carefully about leading others mm. and breaking down what I'm actually doing and, and putting, putting my um, own teaching under the microscope to uh, challenge it and to articulate then what what works uh, and to also to be authentic and to be consistent so the things that I realize I want everyone else to do uh, am I doing them 100% consistently so I think that that actually it's not necessarily the case that teaching uh, plateaus and, and that gets disregarded um, now as to the question you know do lessons suffer for me I would say not really and what I mean by that is not all lessons, I would be the first to admit, are the best lesson I could I could plan and deliver or prepare, let's say. But um, all of them are, none of them are poor. I, 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 you know, there's a line in the sand for me about being, being at least prepared enough that it's a good experience for the students and I'm not trying to wing it or make it up as I go along. I, I, I've been there, I've done that, I'm sure we all have. I hate that feeling. I hate being in that position. Um, so I, I, that you know, it's a personal thing. But I make sure that I'm at least prepared to deliver a good lesson. And and I think the beauty of maths teaching is that that is not especially onerous. If you if you understand the principles, there's a fantastic book by a chap called um, Craig Barton called <laughs> How I Wish I Taught Maths. And if you if you understand the principles of of maths teaching, it's it's a fairly it's not an onerous process in the way that perhaps teaching English um, is or history or something like that. So that's my take on it. That's my take on it. Well, what do you think, Femi? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think I think I, I talk a lot about it's not about teaching outstanding lessons. It's about teaching consistently good lessons. And if you teach consistently good, consistently good lessons, then the outcomes will be outstanding. So, so let's try and get to a point in the department, whether it's me or whether it's a, a newly qualified teacher, where every lesson, as Matt said, is, is good, is strong. And I think and the, the, the results will come. So I think I got myself to a point where I could do that quite effortlessly in those five years. And I probably now just still just do the same. 
So definitely the quality, if you went, if you observed me in 2014 when I first became a second department or now, I think, I think you'd see a similar quality. I don't think things have dipped. The one exception to that, I would say, is there are times when I, and I try not to make, I try not to um, actively work in lessons, so on the iPad or on my computer doing, doing head department things, but there might be times when I'm just, I'm just thinking about things that aren't directly the children. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm just teaching something and, you know, going through it and now the kids are on the independent task and I'll notice Lima's come up, just a, a, a parental, you know, not concern or something they want to talk about. And th- they're thinking, right, okay, that's interesting. I need to think about that, how I'm going to deal with that. And I, I, what I often try and do is I often try and do the thinking then when I'm teaching mm-hmm. so that when the lesson is over, I can act immediately and I haven't got to do the thinking so what then happens is that I'm thinking when I, when the kids are working and they can't see it, they can't, they wouldn't pick up on it. I'm not on my phone or anything, but it's sort of like I'm, I'm half helping Harry with this quadratic he's trying to factorise and also thinking, I think the best thing to do is just to ring her <laughs> and have a conversation so that she can find out what, you know, that, that, that is happening. And that wasn't the case when I was, uh, before I was, you know, a second department or head department. So we, we differ, we, that's a point I think we differ on. Yeah. I think we, we've mentioned this before, but, um, I, for me, I'm, when I'm teaching, I'm not I'm not le- looking at any emails or letting anything pop up. So I, I'm I've I'm not using any of my classroom time um, to devote any brain power to anything other than what's in front of me. Yeah, um, which I think is 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 incredible, and it's and it's the better way. And if my daughter was at a secondary school, and one teacher was saying what I'm saying, one was saying what you're saying, I prefer you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's be- it's better. I, I, I do purely for the nature of trying to make sure that every moment is maximised when yeah, they're not yeah. there. But it's better if you're not, definitely. Right. Yeah. Must be. <laughs> well, 100% attention on the children, right? Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the ideal. Yeah, well, I think so. Yeah. So why, do you, why, do you, why, do, why don't you do that? Um, time management, I oh. think. Trying to make sure that, as I say, as soon as they leave, I could be on it. And I find that things are coming in six seven things sometimes in a lesson that require attention so because of that i like to just be aware of what it is what's going on um it just, it's for the same reason and i know i differ for some people on this i check my email before i leave for work in the morning i don't do anything about it i don't respond but i check it so that on the way in i could be like right okay so he's asked for that he's asked for that I've got it. so as soon as i get in i'm not having to be oh gosh goodness me i've been asked i, I know already and then bang yeah, I, I I think that's a great tip I've taken from you over the years as well. Just uh, I I'll check email, and but at a time when I'm not going to respond to it, but allow the brain to deal with that in the background. Maybe you know I don't recommend checking your email just before you go to bed. No, I don't do that. But um, yeah, but I find I've a much much more constructive responses to emails when I've had time to, uh, I've just let them sit for a, a few hours. This is fascinating, this. Um, kind of two things on this. Um, I'll ask the questions um, individually. Um, the one I forgot to ask before, actually, but you've alluded to this. Um, how would you say your workload compares to when you were teaching with a full timetable but no responsibilities? Uh, well, I'll, I'll bite. Yeah, go on. Um, <laughs> so I, I think it's actually quite similar overall, but it's but the, it's it's far more varied, it's less predictable. So one of the things I think I, I try and do is make sure that my own stuff is sorted um, in a way that I never used to 
I, I know, I'm, I'm organized in a way that I never was when I was just purely classroom teaching. And the reason for that is I can have someone come in at, you know, eight o'clock, quarter to eight, who just wants to talk to me and they've got something they need to get off their chest or they want to talk through and it's quite pressing. And that can be half an hour of my time. It can be mm. 45 minutes. And I, my feeling as a, as a leader, and then, you know, there are times when I have to say, you know, we'll have to book in to do this, but for the most part, I want to be available for people if they, if they need to speak to me. So, um, and similarly, you know, you, you, often things come up in, in my school, it could be a behavior issue that you end up chasing and that can explode into a two hour, you know, two hours of your time or three hours of your time, start taking statements and calling parents and reviewing CCTV or something like that. So um, when things are going well, it's about the same when when things get out of hand it can be a lot more work i think but but um for the most part it's 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 less predictable that's what i would say i think the the, the thing you said then about about making sure you're available is, is so important i was, I was out for dinner with a, a head of english the other day and she said to me um yeah i've got this new member of my department and he's quite he's, he's quite needy and he's quite sort of and he came to me and he said, oh, yeah, I need, to, I need to talk to you about some things in the department that are very different to my old school. Um, when are you available for a chat? And I, and I actually said to me, she said, I told him, you know, I've got, I've got a very busy day today, a very busy day tomorrow. So it was a Monday. I said, I said, well, it won't be till Thursday. And I remember just thinking, that's poor. <laughs> I, I, you have got a busy day. I'm not questioning you. But that's, that's poor. If, you, if, you, if your long-term game is to get this guy to a point where he's he's getting the, the the kids are getting the most out of him give him time now and you might find that in the later stages that you have to give him less time be available that's your that's your job i, I don't really i don't really get that i don't buy it i don't get it wrong i'm not talking about a, a queue out the door of people wanting to talk about you know how tired they are and the kids and uh, you know got locked out of my house it can't it can't be that but you're you you are there it's, it's a people job i don't think it's an admin job it's a people job give people your time and that does take up a lot of time as well. It really does. Well, and, and also it, in the way that you do that, it's so important. I've, I've had interactions with people where I've gone to see them and I wanted to talk about something important, but they were still sort of shuffling papers on their desk or kind of their, their fingers yeah. were hovering over keys on their, on their computer. So I make a very conscious effort. You know, I, I don't exactly swipe all the papers off my desk onto the floor when someone comes in, but I do sort of, you know, put, put, turn and face them and put my pen down and put put the task aside that I was doing and they get 100% of my attention um, I don't try to do something else at the same time and I think that makes a difference to people I think so much of what we do is just making sure is is allowing people to be heard you know in, in that in the right yeah, way absolutely I've, I've worked in five schools so that's five heads and two of those five heads were head and shoulders I'd say above the other three and the two that were better made you feel like you were the only person in the room, the only person that mattered, the only person they were interested in when they were giving you a very, very small portion of their time. And the one I work for now is great on this. And I actually observe him quite a lot because I like to see what he's doing. And, you know, maybe one day I'd like to go on to leadership myself. So I, I do watch him a lot. And he does it with everyone. He does it with the parents. He does it with the year seven girl who wants to show you her, her painting or whatever. He does it with the his members of his senior team. Very, very important. Hard to do. Hard to not come across as stress, fl yeah. stressed, flustered, can't do it now, but you, you've got to. It's really important. This fascinating, this. Yeah, so just one kind of comment on that and then a follow-up question. I think that's a real, real skill of a head of department. And I think it's one that I just wouldn't have. Um, 
to not appear flustered and not appear stressed. I, I can't really hide that kind of stuff. And when I was teaching full time, it was hard enough to hide it from the kids, but then to also almost kind of hide that from the staff as well, because you've got to appear in control. And I've seen other heads of department fairly recently who they'll come in in the morning and it's like, oh God, I'm so, well, what'll happen? In fact, this is exactly what'll happen. One of their other teachers will say, oh God, I've got a five period day today. Oh God, I'm so busy. And the head of department will say, you think you're busy? Wait till you see my timetable. I've got this and I've got a meet. And it's just, (laughs) what do you you want a medal? What are you hoping to achieve with that, right? But this this Craig comes down to what we talked about about half an hour ago be good before you take that role yeah get yeah, to yeah, a level yeah. of competence yeah that's why they're saying that possibly yeah, yeah. in that they they didn't have that competence you know to use our term they weren't they weren't beyond good before they then took on the next role yeah that's so important yeah it's interesting and my other thing i was going to ask how often over the course of a year would you be kind of pulled out of your lesson to either deal with something or have a meeting with slt or would would that be a fairly regular occurrence or would that be a rarity that happens for me. Uh, it's, it's neither a rarity nor, nor a regular <laughs> occurrence, but it does happen. So let's try to put a number on it. Probably um, probably one lesson a fortnight. Like, uh, maybe that's a regular. Oh, that's quite a lot, that's right? Pretty, so I'm sorry, regular. are we talking about pulled out as in like, Matt can have a bit work? Well, it could be all sorts of reasons. So it could be... Is that what Craig meant though? I don't did know. You, well, you, well, you, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking... All kind of aspects of it. Maybe pulled out for a quick word, but I'm thinking more of, right, we're going to put some someone on cover for that lesson because you're needed to do this or, you know, something like yeah. that. Yeah, more commonly it'd be for me, it'd be that you've got to meet someone yeah. or, um, you know, uh, there's a training course uh, yes. or something's got to be set up. It, it would be something like that. Um, but then this is the beauty of, of mixed revision and mixed, you know, mixed, mixed exercise, mixed practice that... The, the cover lady who I have an excellent relationship with um, at my school understands, you know, the, what, what the expectations are and the students understand what the expectations are. And uh, if I'm if I'm out of a lesson, there'll be it'll be an hour of mixed practice for them. And um, she facilitates that excellently, I would say. It's interesting you ask that question. It's, it's, it's got me thinking about the difference between the independent sector and the state sector. And the reason, and I, I, I suspect I probably am going to come back into the state sector, you know, at some point. Uh, but I wanted to do independent because I wanted to see what it was like. I didn't go to an independent school, so let's go and check out what, what you get for your how many thousands of pounds. Um, in an independent school, I would say never. Interesting. It just doesn't, just doesn't happen. Because the idea of, of, of putting someone else in front of the kids when you're available, when it is a, effectively a business just can't happen and so it, it, it doesn't happen um so you know my third year there now i can count the amount of times that's happened on one hand however in my last school when i was head of department in a city school yeah quite frequently people would come in it was an academy so you know the academy lead would come in and well can you take her on a on a tour of the department and a meeting with her that that sort of thing it would be quite it would be quite frequent but the biggest thing there of course was just behavior just yeah. knock, knock on the door um can you come and help me can you come and speak to this person? He's refusing to do this. That was happening probably daily where I was. And I think that's what I meant before when I'm saying it kind of affecting your teaching because like that, that just, there's no positive to that, right? I mean, even though I know, Matt, what you're saying there, that your kids will, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world for them to be doing some independent revision, mixed topic retrieval and so on, but it's it's no substitute for having you there, right? And it's, I I think that's, it's just one of the frustrations, I think, for being ahead of the world. And this is what I mean when I say the teaching 
falls falls down on the priority list, maybe not on your priority list, but on somebody else's, your teaching is obviously below, you know, whatever meeting you've been called out to do. And I think that would frustrate yeah. me. Yeah, it, it can be difficult. I remember having quite a lively discussion in my, when I was in the second department about being asked to go to the um, the Pixel Mass Conference. We've selected you, Femi, you'll be going. <laughs> and, and just saying... No. <laughs> well, well, this is this is, the, this is the thing. This is the point I would make that it isn't a fixed thing, right? You you have a say in in how much you mm. you come out of your lessons, your own lessons. So the filter, the you know, the, the the bar has to be reasonably high for me. And I'm the same. There's certain certain kind of in quotation marks CPD events that I've said no. That that's not going to be worth the payoff yeah. against yeah. you know having cover for the students and that's true uh, on all the tasks <clears throat> you can take on I, I think especially so as you as you become a, on the senior leadership team where there are wider issues to look at and you see more often people who are quite motivated perhaps to get involved with whole school issues to make a bit of a name for themselves and then you say well hang on are is this really the best for the kids or would you be better off in the classroom? Yeah. So I, I think there's there's some autonomy involved in it. It's not it's not a given that you know, you'll be taken out all these lessons and it's always for a terrible reason and you have no, no choice. Interesting. Interesting. Right. Let's shift gear a little bit. Um, I want to talk about, I've, I've titled all the sections here. I'm calling this decisions, decisions. Now this first one is really kind of at the forefront of my mind because I visited, I visited two schools recently where I saw this happen. So what I'm going to ask you in a moment is how do you balance the need for consistency across your department with a desire for teacher autonomy? But I'll just kind of paint, paint a picture of this. So I visited two schools recently both of which the head of department was very adamant that teachers should have autonomy to teach however they wanted. So there was a scheme of work. The scheme of work looked very similar, actually. Um, essentially, you have two weeks to teach whatever. Here are the kind of bullet points of the things you kind of cover. There was a shared area folder on the system, a few PowerPoints knocking around, a few worksheets, but no obligation to use any of them in particular. And I wandered around the lessons. And in the first school... It was a disaster because you had some lessons were really, well, the teachers were strong. The lessons were really good. You could see the kids were learning things. The next door along in the corridor, just, I'd be very surprised if any learning was going on. The kids didn't have a bloody clue what was what, what was happening, right? Go to the other school, and this was the week after, I heard the same story. No, we believe in full teacher autonomy, but they've managed to pull it off. I was seeing very different lessons but both on the surface anyway, seemed very, very effective. The kids were getting a lot out of it. When I questioned the kids, they seemed to know what was going on. Now, my bias here is, I think if I think if I was leaning one way or the other, these days I'm much more in favor of consistency across the department, more centrally planned lessons and so on and so forth. I think that's a safer bet. I think it's a big old risk to be uh, let teachers be a bit more kind of autonomous and ch choose the kind of resources and tasks they use. But I'm very, very interested in your take on this before, um, yeah, we, we kind of dig a bit deeper. So do you want to go first, Matt, on this one? Yeah, right. Well, okay, this is huge. Yeah. So there's, 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 there's a lot of levels to this. So suit up, right? Yeah. Um, so well, let, let me start off by being a bit difficult and pushing back against the question. Yeah, let's do it. I, if you say... If, you, if you're talking about the trade-off between consistency and teacher autonomy, I would just first want to make the point that I don't, I don't see any virtue 
in pure bland consistency for consistency's sake right so I, I, here's the point i made to to the head once upon a time on this if you want consistency i'll give it to you tomorrow and all i need to do is i'll go and find the the lowest performing member of staff in in my in in my department and bring on each dimension of teaching and bring everyone else down to that level okay so right guys we're going to stop planning our starters carefully we're just going to take them quickly off the internet because that's what the lowest performing member of staff does right okay we're not going to plan our explanations and carefully sequence our thinking because we're just going to ping up a video f you know that of someone else explaining it because that's what the lowest performing so then we'll have complete bland consistency across the department but clearly that's absurd no one wants that so my take on it is that what do i really want i want high quality teaching right i want high quality learning going on in all classrooms but let's say from the controllable end high quality teaching in all classrooms now i believe that we know enough about what works in teaching that if we move towards high quality teaching taking a kind of evidence-based approach we will probably end up with some consistency because there are certain things that we know work like begin the lessons with a recap of previous learning um, you know use lots of uh, models and uh, high quality explanations ask questions um, do mixed review all of these things you know just uh, you can just you can just take Rosenshine or, or any number of resources. So for me, it's about how do we work across a department who are a mixed ability group of teachers, essentially, in order to move people forward in the areas that are going to make the biggest difference for them to be effective teachers. And if consistency is an outcome of that, then great. You know, that will please the head, too. Um, now, to, you jump in at any point, but let me just, uh, uh, Femi, but let me just go on to deal no, with no <laughs> to deal with sort of, sort of scheme of work and, and centrally planned lessons. Um, I, I guess the the question then becomes like how how imposing a structure do you put on the team in order to guarantee that high quality lessons? And the answer to that depends on the quality of the teachers. So if you have very inexperienced or very ineffective, let's say, teachers, uh, perhaps they're not subject specialists or perhaps, you know, you don't have a full complement of teachers and you have long term supply. I think the centrally planned sort of lesson resources, it, it gives you a scaffold which raises the, the lowest common denominator. But I would always want the more effective teachers to be able to deviate from that. Um, so it doesn't uh, hold them back. So it's nuanced and it it's involves some quite challenging conversations, potentially. Um, if you've got a team of very effective teachers, I see much less need for the rigid structure because they're likely to be doing the things that you want them to be doing uh, anyway. So I'll throw all that on the table and see what see what Femi makes of it. So, so a couple of years ago, I was at this, in the city school I told you about when I was head of maths, and I emailed the assistant head of teaching and learning, and I said, can you please give me the name of the five best teachers in this school? I want to go and observe all of them within the space of a week. And straight away, lovely lady, she came back with, yeah, in my view, it'd be this person, it was a PE teacher, this person, it was an English teacher, this person, it was history, and I think it was someone in drama. So email to them, you've been, I've been told, you are, I knew them anyway, you know, you're the five, can I come, and, and, and typically, 
effective teachers quite like being observed because they quite like showing off their their talent their skill so straight away yep come anytime anytime and and what i what i saw and what i observed was really really good lessons that all looked completely different and it got me thinking about actually what are the not 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 this idea of uniformity branded powerpoint scripted lessons all that stuff it was what are the habits of really really effective teachers and there were things that i saw across all of their lessons whether it was someone out on the hard courts teaching someone how to do a chess pass for netball or someone teaching about how the Second World War started. I'll just give you a couple of them. Um, all of them had some, some degree of recall. They all went back with, to, right, last lesson we were, doing, we were doing passing, weren't we? What kind of passes are there? Oh, there's the chess pass. There's the overhead pass. There's, come and demonstrate. All that stuff. They all did that. All of them started, you know, promptly, efficient, nice, clean, crisp starts to their lessons. All of them modelled the thing they were trying to teach really well up at the front, they were the boss, you know, proper Sam Strickland, you know, be the boss. They were they were doing that. All of them circulated, they got around and had really nice little one-to-one conversations. Your chest pass a little bit looks like a shoulder pass to me. Do it for the middle of it. Oh yeah, thanks, miss. And off, and you know, gave that little instruction. Um, all of them protected the class from the people in the lesson who don't want to learn or didn't want everyone else to learn. They did that very well by either you know, maybe removing somebody if necessary or having a stern word or whatever it was they were doing. They protected the the, 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 the more, not needy, but you know what I mean, the better behaved people for the ones that would like to disrupt. Um, and all of them noticed what I call passive passengers. So that's people who were just there. They're just existing. They don't really want to learn. They don't really want to not learn. They're just kind of there. They all noticed those. And just went, hey, Lewis, you haven't really written much for the second paragraph, which is meant to be about the three... Co- Can you just... What, what do you think? They all did that but in completely different ways. So for me, it's consistency is not everyone doing everything in exactly the same way, which is how it's so often taken in education. It's, it's, it's high quality as you go from lesson to lesson. We, what we don't want is uniformity. And that's what I started to see creep in in my last school. It became very much this way. You're not using six questions on your starter. You didn't have the brand, you didn't have the branded PowerPoint. You know, you're not calling it a silent starter. You're not calling it a do now. Yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> Is that a serious thing you're saying to me? I, you know, I, I remember going around with my assistant head, or deputy head as she was, and her saying that one of my colleagues, who through no coincidence now works with, works with me in my current school, i.e. moved when I moved, he needs to have six questions in his starter. He had four. Have a word with him. Have a word with him. You know, what, what, what on earth are we talking about? So, so I'm not certain that you're saying that, but I do see it interpreted too often as that in some schools. Well, this is going to be interesting, this, because I, 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 I keep changing my mind on this. So let, let's dig a bit deeper into this. So the first thing, um, I completely agree. I've, I've been in lots of schools recently where they've got whole school policies that have been shoehorned in on the maths department and they just don't work. They just do yeah. not work at all. So I was in a school and you, the teacher had to go through five slides just to get to the kind of the start of the lesson because it was all yeah. like bloody citizenship and all, all this crap. And I'm like, what, what year are we in here? And like, they were like, well, there's no, we just have to do it. And it's, they were trying to fit and it was just a disaster. So I think whenever you try and apply whole school things to any subject, really, you've got a bit of a problem straight away. But I, the more schools I visit, the more I'm seeing an argument for quite rigid consistency across maths departments. And that's because the reality is that a lot of maths departments have got 
non-specialist teachers in, have got split classes, left, right, and center, have got potentially and weaker teachers in there who need some extra support. And to, to pick up on what you're saying there, Femi, I mean, you can go in and watch these five different lessons as an experienced teacher and pick up on these things and think, okay, I know how I can apply what the PE teacher's doing to when I teach year nine's quadratic equations or whatever. Yeah. But can yeah. your ECT who's struggling, can she do that? Or is she going to be better off with a PowerPoint that you have prepared interpreting what the PE teacher's done? And she can deliver that and spend all her time thinking how to get the best out of the resource that you've put together. So if you'd have asked me 10 years ago, I'd have said, I, I would have been saying exactly what your, your guy's saying. The reality is now, I think in a lot of maths departments, greater consistency needs to happen. It's it's the only way to solve some of the problems that are out there. Discuss. It, well, uh, I, I I would 100% agree with that. And, you know, again, you know, my experience of having someone go off long term absent and not being able to cover them has, has led me to conclude that, flipping heck, if we just had centrally planned PowerPoints here, this <laughs> this would be a lot easier than me having to plan this person's lessons, plan this, these cover lessons every time. So I completely see that why it, it goes that way. Um, I think as a as an as an industry, what we really have to be so cautious about is that this doesn't become a one way system, a trap for us. So we we produce these centrally planned lessons, and you know. Craig Craig Barton produces this fantastic lesson, so he's got a really good understanding of variation theory and, and examples, and that's so helpful for the non-specialists who are delivering maths. But over time, well, why do why are we recruiting intelligent you know graduates with maths backgrounds when we could just be employing you know I, I don't know no disrespect to any other industry, but let's just say um, you know hairdressers or something. Um, who can just come in and click through this PowerPoint. So it, uh, my fear is it becomes a race to the bottom. And that's not, again, the fault of anyone producing centrally planned lessons or, or aiming for consistency. But what I think is necessary is the, the, the wherewithal to increase the importance of CPD and to put that, make that subject specific, Sam Strickland talks about this a fair bit in, in well, certainly in his first two books, Education Exposed books, you know, that subject specific CPD is so important because that's what's going to um, allow us to really transfer deep knowledge to, to students. So how do we take uh, an inexperienced workforce and move it forward and not make it make not help them to become helpless to use um, a phrase from this man here so i'll throw that back what, what do you make of all of that <laughs> well this is right well let me i'll i think this is a response to it but again tell me if i'm dodging the question here so i was mentioning those two schools earlier on um the one where they um, taught things completely differently, but everything seemed to be going well. I watched the head of maths and she was a brilliant teacher. God, she was amazing. And she was doing a lesson on um, expanding double brackets. And all of year nine were doing this same lesson. Um, but she had this amazing task. And again, it was one of those that she didn't realize how good it was. Um, it was kind of a, like a spot the mistake one, but the, the mistakes were really subtle. And the way she got the kids like think per share and stuff, it was amazing. 
I then went into the room next door and there was um, an ECT. I think she was in a second year and she was really, really good. She was teaching essentially the same lesson in the sense that she was at the same point in the scheme of work and she was teaching it pretty well, but she wasn't using this task. Um, she was using one that she created herself. She had a bit of some off maths box and so on. And the lesson was great. The lesson was really great. But when I was kind of discussing with the head of maths, I said, why, why isn't everybody using this task? Because this task is brilliant. You, and we, just, we talked about it and she knew it was good. And I said, this is one of the best, best tasks I've seen for this. Why isn't the whole department using this? And she's like, well, no, because we kind of, you know, I, it's in the shared area, but I'm not going to prescribe everybody to use it. I said, well, why not? Because I'll tell you what, your kids are getting a better deal than the kids in the room next door because they're not being exposed to this kind of thinking because they don't get this task. And then once you start to open the door to that, then I think you're going down a very interesting path because then let's say, let's take a worked example. So this head of maths was really skilled. She could pick a really good example to use that she then modeled. One that didn't kind of lead to dodgy generalizations, didn't bring in misconceptions. It was a really well thought through example for multiplying out these, these brackets. Other teachers in the department, they used different examples, but they weren't as strong. She couldn't, they couldn't build from them in like use variation and so on and so forth. So I said, well, why isn't everybody using that starting example? Because that's a really good example that you've thought through. So what's your response to that? When you've got something really good, why not insist everybody uses it? Yeah, well, I, I think that's, that, that's, that's, it's opening up what is a really good discussion there because my, my point would be that, so I talk about, I, I, this, is, this is gonna seem like a real tangent, but it hopefully will come, come back. I talk about department development and department, you know, people often talk about department development plans. And when I started thinking about development development plans, I was thinking about like a fixed state. What do I want my department to look like in X years time? And I've come to realization that's the wrong way of thinking about it. I now think about it as organizational habits. What things do I want to be occurring on a routine basis through my department on a, on a week, on a two weekly cycle, on a half termly cycle, on a termly cycle? And the reason for that is staff will come and go and people are always developing and always improving. There is no fixed endpoint. You're always going to be moving kids through the system. So you want to put in place the organizational habits that are going to lead to the maximum improvement over time and just a, a, an upward cycle. So for me, it's about, to go back to your example, it's, it's what organizational habits are in place to share that understanding of that resource because if you just hand that um, resource to the to the other teacher, the, the NQT, she may not really understand why it's so good. And that will then be a problem in her delivery of the examples. Uh, and, and so how do you create the situations where you can share this kind of thinking? I mean, here's, a, here's, a, here's such a simple one that I was talking about with a colleague the other day. He was doing mixed numbers to um, improper fractions. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I use my example was two and two thirds. And I realized that was a mistake. And why so? Well, because the kids didn't know which two I was talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's such subtle things like that, that we want. If you could design the examples for that NQT and avoid all of those possible traps. But it's so much better in the ongoing cycle of the organization if she's understands that and she's yeah. brought along on that journey too. Yeah. My, my, my answer was going to be similar to what I think Matt has just said, um, which is that 
in my view, the goal for your head of department, the, the example you've given, is not to distribute her resources and her examples so that everyone use them, uses them. It's to try and get the people in her team to begin to think like she thinks. And that will take a, a, a reasonable amount of time. And that's why it's a skilled profession. You know, you can't, you can't do, you can't do thoracic surgery tomorrow by being given access to the same tools and the same um, flowchart of things that you need to do, like a, like a skilled, experienced thoracic surgeon. And and our our game is the same, I think. So so the goal is to try and get the ECT next next door to begin to think. Okay, you're teaching expanding brackets to year nine. They've never seen it before. What might be a good example to start with? Well, you know, maybe start with just nice, obviously, integers, positive numbers, so they can get used to what they're doing. What will be the next step on for them? Well, to think about actually involving some negatives, maybe one positive, one negative. What might be a third example? I'm going to do double negatives to get them to, to the idea of, you know, minus six, minus two is minus eight, but minus six times minus two is, is 12. You know, all, and that, but that's not going to come to example three. That's a way of thinking that will hopefully come with time. Now, the mistake we make in education is we say, because you're experienced, you must think like that. Because you're experienced, and experienced teachers are good teachers, and it's complete rubbish. You know, I, I often visit schools. I don't visit anywhere near as you do, Craig, but I, but I do try and get into some schools. Well, your best teachers are guys from teaching eighteen months. <laughs> um, so, so let's take out this word experience. Let's just try and replace it with effective. And effective teachers think about things better than ineffective teachers do. And it's that thinking that we want to try and propagate. And it, and it, and it, and it will take time. And I think people are trying to bypass that. By just saying, well, I don't even think him because it's all done by a head department or somebody in London and we'd see made it out to them. Oh, I, I agree. And again, I mean, I've spoke about this many a time that, I mean, I, I even watched the head of department clicking through a White Rose Maths PowerPoint and you could tell he hadn't got a bloody clue what was going to come next on the screen. Like the, he didn't know, the kids didn't know, like these numbers were just appearing and it was a disaster. So that that's obviously terrible. But where's the argument against this? Let's go back to this, this head of department, because we had a big, we, we had a big chat about this. Yeah. So one option is that she just says to staff, you are using this task. And I agree, without any thought, it could be a disaster. Option two is we do what I think you two are suggesting, which is she kind of builds in the kind of mechanisms within the department where in the long term, staff realize almost for themselves that this task is a good one and they start thinking of the way that she thinks. But let's, what about this for a kind of a kind of middle ground? And this is where we kind of got to. What happens if she comes in in the departmental meeting and says, right, I've made a decision. Um, we're all going to use this task with our year nines next week on expanding double brackets. But we're going to spend the next 20 minutes as a department working through this task, thinking how we might need to adapt it for our students, what questions we could ask them and so on and so forth. Because that feels to me like... Your solution sounds like it's going to take a long time. Whereas, what about the kids? Let, the kids need to experience this. So w is there a problem with, with that approach? No, I don't think so. And there's, there's some pragmatism. I mean, I, I, I certainly wouldn't want to come across, and this is something Femi, you know, is, is said very emphatically as well, as saying, like, we teachers need to reinvent the wheel each time and yeah. make their own resources. And, you know, we don't don't share things so i think that that would be absurd and if there's a great resource there you know why not have it available and um 
you go through the process of educating or developing stuff to understand it. I think the the practical solution to that is you you collect, and this is hard to do because you have to clear out periodically the stuff that's not so good, but you collect the best resources into your shared folders and the line with stuff is very simple. Um, the go-to uh, resources are in this shared folder and they're there because they're the best stuff we've got. Um, now, you, in my view, use other resources if you want, but these are the best and they're, they're available. And it's a bit like, it's the same line I have with, um, you know, with, with the effects, um, John Hattie's effect size work. So if someone's, if someone's talking about, um, I want to do uh, an investigation, right, discovery learning, my, my line is very simple. Well, look, we, we've got some evidence about how effective that is, broadly speaking. Here's how it stacks up against direct instruction or explicit instruction or however you want to call that. Um, so make your own choice, but you should be cognizant of the reasons you're choosing to do one or the other. So it's not saying you can never use a different resource or you can never do an inquiry based approach, but be clear in your own mind the reasons you're doing that. And it might be because there's some other aspect of the classroom society that you're trying to develop and that's absolutely fine but if it's purely for you know maximizing learning you know here's the evidence it's this one um so that that's my take on it you know you know i, I you might disagree craig and you you see a lot more lessons than me as in a as in a, a varied number of teachers than i do i rarely see a lesson in my view math lesson that's won or lost as a result of the the task the piece of paper that's given out, the exercise, the page of the book they go to. I just see them lost for two reasons. One is the culture. And a boxer put a tweet out the other day saying, in the vast majority of lessons that I see, or a high proportion of lessons that I see, students just aren't listening. They're not listening to the teacher for all sorts of reasons. That's the first one. So that's, we've got to sort that out. And the second one is people unable or find it very difficult to give good, crisp, sharp teaching nuggets that then allow the kids to know things they didn't know so that they can do things. Because kids like to be able to, to do things. And yeah, we, we, we've, we've all had it when our father-in-law comes around showing us how to sand down a, a door and he spends ages going through, you know, I had this sander and this and uh, what kind of doors this and I, I wouldn't... Teacher, get, I want to do it. Get up with it. <laughs> you know, I want to be. I want to be sanding. I, I want to be feeling like I'm doing something, and then I might have develop some kind of love for this DIY business and start doing it myself. But if it's going to be this long, drawn out, you know, four different types of screw, and I, uh, what kind of, I, I don't want it. So, and I see that lessons all the time. So, you, your example of the resource, it, it, I'm sure it was very good, but I just. I don't, I don't make that a big, a big win for me, a big ticket thing that, oh my goodness, if this teacher was just using Corbett Maths, these kids would be flying. I rarely see it. Right, this, this, is, this is interesting for me. So you, you've hit on something here. So you're, you're right. You are absolutely right. So let me tell you how things normally play out when I, when I visit like a maths yeah. department. So I, I get a call in from whoever saying, well, would you come in for three days, do some departmental work, do some coaching, blah, blah, blah. And I always say, um, sure, um, tell me what you think the areas for development are. And it's always either differentiation or um, our assessment or stretch and challenges are classic. It's always that, right? So I go in with that 
and I go around the lessons and similar to what Adam says, I phrase it slightly differently. It's the participation in lessons. The particip- yeah. To use Lamov's term, the participation ratio is almost exclusively incredibly low in the vast majority of um, of departments I visit. So I then have to have quite a difficult conversation with the line manager and I'll say, look, I know you want me to do work on challenge, but until we get the kids firstly listening and then the teachers getting a sense of what the kids know, we are literally wasting our time because as you say, Femi, we could have the best task in the world, but if the kids aren't listening and the teacher doesn't get any data back for how the kids understand it, we're, we're wasting our time. So, so he, but this is where things are going to take a turn for the worst here. So here's what I want to do, right? So I then get all the department together and I say, I do a little exercise, getting them to um, reflect on diff- how, how, how many of their kids are listening, thinking and understanding in each phase of the lesson. They do this reflection. And then what I want to scream at them is, I'll tell you the solution to this. It's to use mini whiteboards, right? It's to always, every kid's got a mini whiteboard next to them. And during your explanation, fire out a question to check they're listening. Fire out a question to check that they know what the next line is. Everyone hold it up. During your do now, don't just ask John what the answer to question one is. Get everyone to hold it up, blah, blah, blah. This is what I want to do, right? And I think almost exclusively in every school I've visited over the last, let's say, two years, the de- if I was head of department and I had free reign, I would insist every single teacher used mini whiteboards. And I think, and I'd provide training and so on and so forth. And I think that would have a much bigger impact than what we've been talking about for the last kind of 10, 15 minutes, centrally planned resources, because then you're getting regular data back. And this is the point I always make to, to teachers, and it never goes down well. There's no hiding place with a mini whiteboard, right? If you give an explanation and you, you do this brilliant explanation, you think, oh, that's I've nailed that one. And then you ask the kids a question and every single one of them holds up the wrong answer. There's no hiding place. You've got to respond. You've got to do something differently. Whereas if you do, if you do this same crap explanation, and you ask one kid, they get it wrong. Another kid gets it wrong. And then finally, the fifth kid finally gets it right just through a process of elimination. It's very easy for you to go, all right, they've got it and let's just carry on. So in terms of prescription, I would be a fan of consistency in terms of sharing good tasks. But before I go anywhere near that, I'd insist everyone in my department use the mini whiteboard at all times. But that never goes down well. So what see, would you... See, I, I would say that the teachers in this fictional school that you've just use an example they haven't really got a chance <laughs> and the reason why they haven't got a chance is that by nature of the fact that people who are senior to them have asked you to come in and have said that the, that the one thing they want you to work in is challenge or differentiation and you can straight away see that it isn't the people leading by definition don't know what they're talking about mm. so we've got a real problem haven't we because you're there for three days right and you i'm sure say some very good things and are able to build a good rapport but then they're left with these people who weren't even able to identify what the actual issue was. But so the maths teachers that's, that's aren't either, problem, though. But, but the head of, often the head of department isn't either, right? So what about this? Like, so you guys, like, I, I mean, we don't want to go down the mini whiteboard route exclusively or anything, but we certainly want to go down the kind of participation route. I'm assuming you would agree that it's a good idea to regularly get kind of data back from your kids and so on and so forth. Yeah. Would you yeah. make that mandatory? Like if, if colleagues in your department weren't doing that, would you go so far yeah, as to I, say I, I, you I, have I, to use I, mini whiteboards or ABCD cards or something like that? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make it mandatory. What I would make mandatory is us having regular discussions about the why. Simon Sinek, start with why. You know, we've got, to, we've got to talk about why it's really important that when you're doing any kind of starter or do now or whatever, you're actually taking things back and understanding what's going on. 
you're not doing it as a, right, okay guys, we've been asked to use the Academy PowerPoints now, so that's five minutes, off you go, please, in silence. But you're not doing anything with that, you're doing it just as a, we've now been asked to do this. Let's talk about why it's important to do a starter, to get around the room, to see what's going on, and then do something with that information. When you start to get to a point when you're working with a group of people, and it'd be hard to do in three days, I'm sure that you, you, you get towards it, where they start to understand what they're doing, then then I think we, 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 we make progress. The example you gave of saying I asked them, you said something like, um, I asked them to, to, to think about who in the group um, doesn't understand or, or, or who hasn't quite understood what they're doing. That's the sounds a bit like me when, um, when I try and do some DIY or something, and you go onto YouTube and he says, right, the first thing to do with your radiator is to make sure it's at the right pressure. When you've done that, you, and I think, damn it, I don't know what that means. <laughs> if only I knew what that meant, I could do stage two. So to a certain extent, by saying use a mini whiteboard, what what currently isn't happening in my room that need that needs to be fixed? What problem am I fixing by doing this? And that's so important before we give the, the prescription, the, the oh, thing that's going to make it better. Yeah. Um, yeah, go on. No, well, I, I, would, I would add a different angle to that or come at it from another another viewpoint, which is I've seen I've seen lessons where um, the teacher used mini whiteboards and what was revealed was quite plainly that the kids hadn't understood the explanation and the teacher ploughed on mm -hmm. anyway. Now, so for me, it's not at all obvious that um, A, the habit isn't embedded so deeply that the teacher isn't going to plough through and B, that the, the teacher's available working memory um, to to be flexible is sufficiently large to recognize the issue in the moment so for me this is where and it's very uncomfortable but this is where video mm. is yeah. absolutely key because what you can do with video is you can take take the video of the class and then let the teacher watch that in their own time and now they're seeing what you're seeing but they've also got the headspace to process that mm. and then you can sit down with the teacher and say Talk me through. What do you see? What jumps out to you? What was good? What was not so good? And invariably, teachers say, "Bloody hell! They were, they were, the kids just weren't listening when I was talking." Or, you know, I, I noticed that I asked the question. I picked the first kid who put their hand up, who was the bright kid in the group. He said yes, and I said, "Great, we've all got it," and we cracked on to the next part. You know, they, they often will spot this for themselves, and then it's a question. Okay, okay. Let's. How do we solve this? What are some options we can put on the table to improve the, the participation in the lesson? You, you know you've got it right, and I know that you sit in a lot more maths, um, maths offices or maths staff rooms than I do. But you know, well, you, you know you've got it wrong when you're sat in a maths staff room in a in a school that you don't work in, so you don't know, and the conversation is very procedural. What are you up to with your eights? I'm doing spandrel brackets today. What PowerPoint are you using for that? I think it's PowerPoint sixteen. How do I get PowerPoint? Oh, what you do? You go to a shared area. Oh, and I'm not going to have time to do this before the test. And the test is on front. That's the kind of chat. Versus when you hear things like, are you on to factorise with your eights yet? No, they need, they need, a, they need another few lessons on, on, on expanding first. They're not ready for that yet. Okay, so when do you think you're going to go on to it? Well, actually, I think I'm going to leave it till after Easter because I think I'm going to do a couple of revision lessons on that. Then I'm going to throw in a little bit of rearranging to bring that back. And then I think, oh, right, we've got people who are actually thinking about it. We've got people who are actually thinking about how their children learn versus this kind of procedural, I'm just getting through the term, following, doing what doing, I'm asked to do, keeping my head down, using the PowerPoints, you're doing, doing the direction, using my mini whiteboards, even though I don't agree with all that rubbish, and I'm just doing it. And that's, that, that's, that's what, we, what we need to get away from. So it's about 
to kind of, I think, try to get people to actually understand how to think for themselves. And you've used the example of, our oh, problem with that, it seems like it takes a lot of time. It, yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> a bit like a bit like when your 18-year-old first says, you know, um, oh, I don't think I'm going to go out and get drunk, because a, a lot of my mates do that, and I think actually it's better to advise for your exams. Oh, it's been a long road getting you to this point where you can think for yourself, and <laughs> but it will it will take time. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Like again, we'll we'll return to this because I know we're going to pick up on kind of supporting staff in the department a little bit later. But like a lazy analogy to make here is yeah. is almost the kind of discovery versus explicit instruction here. Like one option is we kind of hope staff figure it out themselves that this is a good task to use and we kind of nudge them along the way or it's a good idea they to won't. use a mini whiteboard. Yeah. Hope, like hope is not a strategy. Yeah. Let's ask you a question, Craig. Wait, no, wait, hang on, let me okay. finish. Because he does yeah. All right, okay, okay. Versus okay, yeah. we, you know, we provide really good, well-thought-through reasons and models and strategies and we rehearse and we practice and we reflect afterwards. All the things that we would do is we, if we wanted to teach our kids things. It just feels to me that there's, again, I can only speak with the, you know, but I've, I've worked with at least 20 heads of department this year. There's there's almost a reluctance to kind of say, well, no, but I don't need to do that with my staff. Well, I, a lot of the time, I think you do, you know. I, I really oh, yeah, think that, you do. And, and, and I, must, I, must, I must add, that's rubbish, right? So I agree with what you're saying completely. And I've, I've come across this so many times. I visited another, not, not mine, but another, you know, expensive, well-known private school recently where I had a full day in the department with the head of department who gave me a full tour, everything, brilliant, lovely day. But very much his ethos was, oh no, we don't do any kind of like, they, I let my, I, I like to let them do what they want and have their own autonomy. Basically, he used to say, I just don't do anything. I just let them do, you know, and, and, I, and that was very clear as I went around lessons. So we're, we're with you on that. We completely agree. That's just, that's just not leadership. You know, that's, that's the equivalent of, yeah, I let my kids do what they want, really go spend what they want, eat what they want, cook what they want, go out what they want. No, no, no. <laughs> so we're, we're with you. We're with you. Well, this is interesting. Well, let, let me ask you this. Like, so this is fascinating. We, we love a bit of disagreement here. Um, what would be your, would you have any non-negotiables? What, what would you, what, what, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what, what yeah. would you, what would staff have to do in your department? Yeah, go for it. So can I give you one? Now? Yeah, go for um, it. When I went into my first school, I took over as head of the department, straight away what I saw was this very, very laissez-faire attitude to the starts of lessons where windows were being opened, windows were being closed, books were given out, sheets were being cut out, a kid was up on the table trying to help miss with the projector. I know I did miss, I did it, I did it, all that. And and nothing happened for about 10, 15 minutes. That is a that is a non-negotiable. I don't, I don't use terms like that, but that is definitely a... No, we, we know. We start our lessons promptly, efficiently, and we give the kids the opportunity to recall previous learning we, we do that we know from Rosenstein I didn't actually know this is pre kind of me really reading Rosenstein but I, I knew it worked and I knew it was how I wanted lessons to start so absolutely so I actually choose mapsing I actually showed in my department meeting a video of one of the starts of my lessons and the kids just coming in sitting down opening their books starting the work on the board me going around with my iPod like zoom in on kids work so a kid would be factorizing something and they're scribbling it out no it's not that oh it's this and another kid goes to another desk, and maybe, and then just kind of played it and said, you know, I can't remember how I, I, I did. I did a kind of big sell on it. I didn't just say, here's my lesson. This is what all you all you need to do. I did. I did a why and a what I'm trying to get at, and it was really interesting. People just sort of um, filed out of the department meeting like it was some kind of funeral. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay. And, 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 and don't get me wrong, they weren't saying, oh, that's what I've got to do tomorrow. I think there was quite a lot of going off and kind of discussion. Oh, even he thinks it, but but it, it needed to be said and it needed to be shown. 
So, yeah, we're not advocating this kind of free-for-all, do what you want. But how just far, think would, we're, how yeah, far would you push that then, Femi? So what do you want to see in that start of lessons across your department? So I've, like a, a prompt start is fine, but do you, are there a certain amount of questions? Are there a certain amount of type of questions that need to be on the board? How far do you push it in terms of what you what staff have to do? This, this, this is a great um, uh, yeah, it's great. This is a great example, actually, to get quite specific on. Yeah, so, I, I, I want to see... Uh, 10, 15 minutes of kids having the opportunity to recap on things they've previously done. So that might mean a very low ability year eight class coming in and the board has got, I don't know, 20 or 30 just negative numbers questions on because that's all they've done at the start of year eight. And the teacher did a good real push on negatives with them. They've done the independent practice on it. They've had a homework set on it. And now the teacher's going, right, okay, guys, have a go at this. 15 minutes, you're going to practice this. Off you go. But it might then be, in a in year 11 class, a class having a go at a nasty vectors question on their own, independently, because vectors has been taught, it's been revised, it's been practised, and now I want to see if you can do this one question. So that's why I had that disagreement with that assistant, that deputy head who's telling me it must be six questions. Rubbish! Okay, it must be 10 or 15 minutes of independent practice to see if you really do know this stuff. And then also, you've got to be quite honest with yourself as a teacher. You can't just kind of say... Well, that's the recall start part of the lesson done. You've got to really use that as an opportunity to find out, like, what do, do they do? They know this, and, and, and be honest. You know, they don't. Um, so that's that's what I'm asking. Just going a yeah. bit further. Sorry, Matt, and I keep cutting you off. Just yeah, just going fine. a little bit further on Femi's example there. So, in terms of what staff would be expected to do, silent, independent work. Would you prescribe? where that work was done, how the staff go through the answers. Again, how far are you, you pushing that? No, I don't prescribe it, but it is done by everybody in my department in the same way. And it was in my last department. <laughs> so I guess to send I must have prescribed it. <laughs> um, um, it must be done independently. It must be done. We, I'm using this opportunity to find out whether you can do this. Now, of course, you know, Millie turns around to Evelyn and says, Would it, you know, is X times X, X squared? Yeah, it is. I'm not kicking around. <laughs> you know, and that's a nice little, that's a nice little mathematical conversation between two learners. That's brilliant. But what it isn't is a full-blown, this, can't do this. Liam, what do you get? It's, it's not that. Because otherwise I'm not going to get the opportunity to really find out whether you've learnt this. Because, and that's another thing I've talked to that department about a lot, is the difference between I've taught something and the pupils have learnt something. Because they were very much taking it to be, well, we've taught it. We've done we've done factorising. What does it appear on the year nine scheme work? What's on the year eight scheme work? Can the pupils do it? Um, I, I can remember one last thing before I hand up to Matt. Yeah. I can remember in one school I worked in, well, that's when I was this um, year 11 lead. You know, the year 11 um, second department responsible for, for data and for um, results. I told you about my first yeah. leadership job. The, the teacher of top set, year 11, coming to me on day one in set, you know, and just saying, hi, Femi, I, I know that you now lead on year 11. Um I've finished, I've taught my class all of the year 11, all of the, the higher tier content in year 10, uh, did all of it. Um, so I'm just wondering what you always do with them this year. And it's, it's, wow, this person doesn't in any way understand the difference between teaching something and pupils learning it. So that was a real journey I went on with, with her. But you do see this a lot. You do, you do see it a lot. You do, and Matt, I'm going to just pause you one more, one more thing because I just <laughs> want to push Femi a bit further on this, right? 
So going through the answers I'm interested in here, right? Can I give you two examples, right? And yeah. then I, I want to know as, as, as heads of department where, where you'd stand on this. So this was another school I was in. Um, they had kind of fixed starters, which I, I'm like you. I'm a bit anti in the sense that I think there should be flexibility based on the, the kind of needs of the kids. But they made a decision that they were using the maths box um, starters. It was year 11. So they'd all kind of studied the same content. So it was, it was probably okay. But there was two different ways of going through the answers. One member of staff um, said, Femi, what's the answer to question one? Femi gets it right. Right, okay, everybody. Green pen, tick it if you got it right. If you didn't, correct it in green pen. Uh, Matt, what's the answer to question two? Blah, blah, blah. The other teacher, again, if this was a drinking game for mini whiteboards, people would be absolutely hammered by now. But what the other, the other teacher did was say, okay, you've done your work in your book. Everybody jot down your final answer to question one on your boards. Hover, three, two, one, show me. Right, everybody's got that right. Fantastic answers this. Question two, final answer on your board, three, two, one, show me. Oh, okay, I can see we've got a bit of a problem here. Okay, board's down, let's discuss question two and so on. Now, for me, there was no question that the second was the most effective way to do it. In the first lesson, I was sat next to some kids who were making corrections. They didn't have a bloody clue what was going on. They were just making these corrections. As a head of department, and again, people are going to hate me for this, but whatever. I'd insist everybody did that starter in the same way as the second lesson to get that mass participation, to get that data back. I, I'd prescribe that. Why Why wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I think that sounds fine, what you're talking about there, the second one. I think that sounds fine. I think there's kind of different levels to it. You know, I'm, I'm working with an NQT next year who's coming in completely new. I probably will be okay in the early stages. I know there's more to come with him just using that kind of like, I'm going to pick somebody and they're going to go through the question and I'm going to write on the board and then the group will know. That for me is quite, it's quite low level actually. And I did that for years. I think the steps forward from that are what you're talking about. And I don't necessarily use, I don't at all use many whiteboards, but what I will do is I will go around the whole classroom. And actually, if you've got a class that behave themselves and you're not having to waste time on discipline, it's not at all hard to go around the whole classroom two, three, four, even five times get a real understanding of what the issues are, what's going badly, what's going well. I will help a few people, but I won't help everyone. I'll just notice things and then go to the board and really know what do I really need to go through because the class need it and what can I just put the answer up. So I will do it very much like that. And that's a, that's a skill thing. That takes time. That takes expertise to be able to know. Question one, everyone was fine. I put it in deliberately because I knew everyone was fine. It was just factorised 2x plus 4. Everyone's got that. So I'm just giving that as an answer. The class are going to just tick it and we're going to move on. Now, what I did notice is there was a huge problem with rearranging where you have to factorise. People didn't remember it. People couldn't see it. People couldn't do it. So that's one I'm going to really, really focus on. And I would say that in my team that I lead now... Not everyone is up to the speed of the second at, at all. People are getting towards it, but I do still see people that just go through the starter because that's what you do. And that means that everyone's had the opportunity to to kind of see how the questions are done. Um, but I think the real top level is when you actually know exactly what needs to be gone through. Okay, so, go on, Matt. Go on, Well, can we, let's plant a flag there because I, 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 that it's a really useful example to go back to really the nub of your original question, which is what really is non-negotiable and how, what level of depth are you going into? So my experience was quite similar to Femi coming into a department where the starts of lessons were very shaky, um, really across the department. And so the first non-negotiable became starters. Now there are a bunch of others, but let's, let's put that there. Now, it goes back to part of what Femi said before, getting, getting the why across is so important. So this idea of a non-negotiable is a very 
flexible term because for me it means it, it, it can be interpreted as just a rule we don't necessarily agree with it we don't know why it's in place we just have to do this that to me is not that effective what i want is an understanding of why that is just a, a, a line a bar and a line in the sand that you you know that's the that's the bar that's where we we start and so i worked hard with my team um, we did a, when I first started, the, one of the first things I organized was like an observer is the learner. We did a round robin where everyone observed everyone else. And we talked about that and it was the rule was, you know, you, can, you, you can't give feedback, you can only ask questions sort of thing. It was there to so, so we could get some idea. People who taught alongside each other for five years had never seen each other teach. Um, so we did that. It was really useful. One of the things that came out of it was the starters. I did the same thing as Femi has described and videoed some of my starters. And we then did a sort of match of the day analysis of of that in CPD. And starters became a non-negotiable. We want you to all have starters. Now, what happened was that the quality of those starters was extremely variable. It's what you were saying, Craig. So someone would just bung up the 10 questions off um Math start of the day or something. Yeah, math start of the day or whatever. And it would be the next questions, 10 questions the next day, and the next 10 questions the next day. And they had no real bearing to what had gone before or what was to come in that lesson. Um, someone else would put up, you know, eight questions, and there'd be no real repetition, but they would be what was done the last lesson. Someone else would put up three, and they'd be very skillfully thought out. Now, you're asking, like, how deep do you go with the non-negotiables? Do you say five questions? Well, my answer is the same as, as Femi. It depends right sometimes i'm going to want a longer starter maybe later on in the year um on a you know on a, on a later on a thursday afternoon i'm going to want a longer slower starter to just run out a little bit maybe um i'm going to want a shorter starter because i know that the topic i'm teaching today has quite a lot of teacher input and i want to get cracking so that you're going to have enough time so there's all this skill goes into it so what i then did was then in my department meetings, and I'm sure we'll come to department meetings, I ran a whole programme of CPD, as it were, on starters. So we did, we got round the table, six of us, maths teachers, and I said, I gave a hypothetical lesson. I said, you're going to teach, um, I think it was simultaneous equations to this group, nine set two. This is what they've done in the previous um, uh, lessons, few lessons. I want you to write the starter for the lesson. And everyone, we had five minutes, we all wrote a starter, put, put our boards together and we discussed. Why did you choose that question? Why did you choose that question? Okay, let's do it again. And we did it, we did it three or four times. And what that did was it started to, people actually had to produce something. There's actually a product and it started to get people thinking, oh, yeah, I just, I just put eight questions of solving equations on there, but Stuart did this. And that was really quite clever because he worked through those. And so we did that and then Another session that CPD was about going through starters and we did uh, and it was exactly elucidating the issues that you've uh, brought up there, uh, Craig. And the way I did that was I, I made up um, a starter and I made a selection of student answers to that starter and I handed it out to the team and I made them be like students. And then I went through the starter and I went through it in two different styles. I went through it in the style of, um, right, Bill, what did you get? Uh, five good five it is and then and went through and then I did the opposite and we then talked about what what was ineffective about that first approach what was effective about the second approach what do you take away from it so for me the non-negotiables are around understanding the why and then 
having everyone on board with, yeah, this makes sense and I'm going to do that, and then cranking up the quality through over time. Um, and I don't think if I'd have just said, if I just said, you have to have five questions and that's it, um, we, the kids would be getting as good a deal over time across the school. And, as, I, as and, I, and I would say that it's the cranking up the quality phase that Matt and I are currently in mm-hmm. and will always be in <laughs> because people come, people go, people, some people take a lot, they're, they're graded, it's quite slow, the other people's graded, it's very quick. So we're in the cranking up the quality phase. Oh, this is fascinating. This would you have just on the before we shift gear to to departmental meters? Anything else on the non negotiables front aside from from the starter? Well, I, I can yeah. just reel off a, yeah. a few. Yeah, so, please. Again, it's that flexibility in that word that it's like you know Tom Bennett talks about zero tolerance. That's never really zero mm-hmm. tolerance because you know there's there's reasonable exceptions. Well, it's the same with this. So for us, there's probably four starters. Is one. Um, quality of layout and presentation, just to to hit that very quickly. Um, the expectation across my department is that uh, students draw a margin with a ruler. Date and title is underlined. There's a there's a date and title on every piece of work. Um, that they use mathematical layout, laying down going down the page, and answers are underlined and checked and ticked with a purple pen. So there's a there's a there's a non-negotiable expectation with regards to layout and presentation. But some students struggle more than others. So there's, you know, it's, it's, you can't exactly hold every teacher to account for every detail of every student's work, but we're striving to have that um, sort of consistency, if you like. Uh, starters, mixed review. There's an expectation that you will do mixed review periodically with students, so mixed revision, uh, interleaving, whatever you want to, to call that. Um, and the other one that we've brought in more recently, which I think has been quite effective, is know your weakest three students. Objectively know who your weakest three students are and actively support them. So the line I used, it's not my line, but um, is the best differentiation is giving more of your time to the students who need it the most. Well, if you're going to do that, you have to know who they are. And they change over time. And that takes us to our two weekly test. So we do an, every class does a very short two weekly assessment teachers market themselves and from that i don't care about recording the results centrally in a spreadsheet i don't want question level analysis just who are the three students that are struggling the most in your class and make sure you go to them first during independent practice so that you're always moving that bottom along so those are ours i don't know what about you i think uh when we talked about starts of lessons i would be talking about clear mathematical modeling from the teacher you know, I don't want to go into a lesson and see, um, yeah, it's great uh, for me today. I didn't even teach the ratio. I just gave out five ratio questions, got them all just talking about it and chatting about it. And they came up with how you, well, I, don't, I don't want that. I'm not, I'm not saying that you, there can't be an element of that in your lesson or that that kind of practice is banned. I'm just saying that typically in lessons for me, there needs to be an element of clear mathematical modelling for the teacher where you do some teaching, where you, even if it, even if it's you take that approach I just gave the example of, and at the end you then wrap up how these ratio questions work yourself. So that, so that even if someone's been quite confused by Grace's explanation, her best mate next to her, she then gets you to fully model it and go through it. That, that, that has to happen. That has to, go, that has to be taking place. Um, an independent practice phase, and it's really interesting that, you know, you go to a lot of academies now, they've actually kind of formally put that into their lesson now. The independent practice, we all go silent. We all, that needs to be happening. There needs to be an, a, a time and lesson where pupils think, you know, it's not about silence. Yeah. It's about it's about them being busy on something, on a task. 
Um, and then the last one is, is circulation. Getting around the room. I don't want to walk into Leicester's and see people sat on their desk doing their emails or, um, you know, looking out the back window or, or, or whatever. It, it, it's getting around and actually seeing, you know, what the kids are actually producing and how they're, they're, they're getting on. The best is when you walk into a class, we talked about it on the podcast, haven't we? And you think the teacher's not in there. And you realise she's sat next to a kid, helping a kid one-to-one. So many pupils that I've worked with, tutored privately, are getting none of that. A term. We're not talking about today, we're talking about a term. <laughs> they get no time with their teacher one-to-one. Um, so these are not things I would be saying if you came to join my department. Craig, I came in on Thursday, period four, you weren't doing all four of those. It's, it's not that. But if I was walking the shop floor regularly, as I do, and I saw that a feature of your lessons were that you were never really doing any clear mathematical modelling, or you were never ever circulating in the class, I never saw you going around the class and helping the kids, then we'd start to talk about, about, about you know, your lessons and, and, and how we can improve things. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, that Craig, feels like... Craig, a, got, oh, sorry. Yeah, go on, mate. Sorry. Quick, quick question for you, Please. really, before we, we, we move on. So thinking about the two departments you saw recently where, um, I don't know if it's recent, but two, two departments you saw where they were trying to lean towards teacher autonomy rather than, I suppose, yeah. a structure with increasing number of non-negotiables. Um, and one was quite successful or, or that, you know, was going well yep. let's say and one was a disaster what what to your mind was the underlying um differences that separated them what Great was question. what was the frame what was the framework that makes the difference there yeah it's uh, it's something i was i was thinking about on the train home because I, I saw them really really close together as well i think there was two things i think and this is a bit of a cliche um, quality of teacher um the the the, the, the second school who managed to pull it off um, had a lot more experience. This was also the same school where they had the previous head of department and the one before that within within right. the department. They right. were stacked with experience and specialism, whereas the other school um, were not, um, as is by far the more common scenario, I, I think, these days. But the other one, and this all kind of tears up nicely, is the way that they worked together in departmental meetings. It was their departmental meetings seemed to be a lot more effective than in the other school they were working through tasks they were working they were they, they were teaching and learning focused whereas the other department met very rarely and when they did it was very admin heavy and i think if you're going down the kind of well whatever whatever route you're going down you need to have those professional regular dialogue um but particularly if you're going down the kind of autonomy route I think it really helps to run ideas by another colleague. I'm thinking of trying this because, oh, have you thought of that? I think you really need that because if you're kind of, trying, particularly if you lack experience, if you're trying these ideas out on your own, you just got your own head to run and by, I think that's when you can get into problems. So I think they'd be the two two features I, I picked up on. One of which is probably out of control in terms of the kind of teacher quality and the experience. But the other one, I think you certainly can control if you get that kind of departmental meeting structure a, a bit stronger. Because it, it's certainly, yeah, and when you talk about control, it makes me think of, you know, how certainly from a senior leadership point of view, it's very tempting to impose these structures it because it feels like that will solve the issue. Yep. It feels like I can I can sit at home right tonight and come up with a flowchart in PowerPoint, which will explain to everyone, this is how you deal with this. Yeah. And then I'll email that out and that's problem solved. And it just hasn't been my experience that the... Impose, imposition of that structure does really solve the problem. And I think the reason for that is because teaching is a, a complex scenario. And I mean that in the, 
in the technical sense, right? You have complicated things like a computer, but they're not complex in the sense that they don't give um, that the output is very predictable for mm. a given input. Variable responses. Whereas, whereas uh, the, when you're working with a thousand students and a hundred teachers, what someone had for breakfast or what someone's mum said to them a week ago has an impact on on the outcome of particular input. Um, and so I think the the solution can't be arrived at by imposing structure on that. I think it has to be arrived at by increasing experience. Mm. Um, and I mean experience in the in the you know we talk we talk about experienced teachers not are not necessarily can can be not necessarily effective, but I mean experience in the in the way we understand it. Like you've seen off situations, you you've you recognize patterns and as a result of that you can respond in a way that's pushing the balance of probabilities in your favor um i don't know what, what what do you what do you think about that yeah it's 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 yeah god i could talk to you guys all day about this it, it it's really i think you're right um what i thought was interesting and i feel bad for what i'm about to say but i'll just say it anyway the conversation I had with the head of department of the former school, the one who was who went down the autonomy route and it just clearly wasn't working, I said to him, look, if I'm honest, hand on heart, here's what I think you should do. I think you should get the White Rose maths PowerPoints. I think you should adapt them to make them kind of suitable, you know, take out stuff if you think it's not appropriate or whatever. And I think you should ask your staff to use them because the quality of materials they're choosing for themselves is just bad. It's really, really bad. And you need a short-term fix here. Like in the long term, let, let's use these white rows. And then when we get to September, let's have a big discussion about what we like, what we don't like. And maybe then we're in a position to start bringing in other things. But you need to start fixing this quick. So I think you need that kind of consistency in there. And that would be, I mean, again, there are a million flaws with that, right? Um, again, you could take, you could use these PowerPoints really well. You could use them really terribly. Of course, the people need to know why they use them and all that. But in, in terms of improving what's in front of those kids, the very next lesson, I'd take I take that you're right. yeah, straight I, away, I, I, right? I, I think you're right. If, if, I think if, you're right. If my daughter was in year, was in year 10, and had a really, really bad experience in year 10 where no one really knew what they were doing, the lessons were chaotic and not much progress was made. And I met with the new head of maths at the first day of September in year 11. I said, look, she's got one year now. What are you going to do? And he said, we're all going to use these PowerPoints. I would say, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. Well, I'll tell you what. Let, let me, let's just kind of keep this conversation going with the departmental meetings because we, we've kind of, kind of danced around this and this feels to me like um, a real key opportunity to improve teaching and learning but uh, there was two questions I, I want to ask you about this how frequently do you as a department meet because that has blown my mind the, the the range of answers I hear from this when I visit schools is absolutely incredible so going from I'll just put this in perspective my kind of uh, department in Bolton where I'm still affiliated they'll meet once a week um, as, a, as a team after school some of that time now has been taken up by whole school CPD it used to always be once a week in departments but now you know one in three will be taken up with whole school. But I also, I was in a school recently where it was once a term, like the department met once a term. And I just thought, what? You've no chance. You've absolutely no chance. So yeah, yeah two questions. How regularly do you meet and what do you do in those meetings? Well, I, I'll just, I'll set the scene by saying, I, I don't think I've got this cracked at all. So I've got, <laughs> I've got some ideas about what not to do um, and some ideas about what to do. I, I equally, like you, Craig, I think 
department meeting is just incredibly valuable. And, and the, I think as a head of department, you should think of it like that. And I would also encourage, you know, assistant heads, deputy heads and, and um, head teachers when they're thinking about the meetings and the, and the directed time for stuff to, to also think of department meetings as being probably the greatest opportunity for staff development that you've, you're going to have um, if done well. Um, to answer your question, by the way, uh, I'm, I would like to have them every week or at least once every two weeks. Um, we don't. We, that's an ongoing discussion at my place, but they're never more than once a four, per four weeks. So often that's once a, um, a half term. And, and, you know, if you've got part time staff, you can be they can just land at times when you might you might not have half your team there or something like that. So it's, it's if they're not very frequent, you're up against it straight away. Um, and the thing I would say that I absolutely now do not do, but I, I used to, I'm guilty of this, um, is admin just they, they do not get used for admin so no admin meetings and really Femi shaped my my thinking on that I, I don't know that they, we need to talk too much about that just other than to say um, we've got emails I expect people to be email competent or we can go and see individuals and um, most admin tasks are, are a one-to-one -one or a one-to-few exchange and most people have sat in meetings that are, are mainly admin and know how terrible it is so Let's not do admin meetings. But then the question is, what do we do? <laughs> and I've tried a variety of things, but I think Femi's probably the the man to to talk about that. Because I think you're further ahead with what you're up to with your department meetings. I, I find it the hardest part of my job because I want to make sure that every meeting I lead is, is really meaningful. I've sat through so many as a second department and a normal teacher when there were arguments, when there were disagreements, when there was admin, when there was guests go through the calendar, someone's made a mistake, someone laughs, well, of course you're going to make that, you know, all that. And I just know that I don't want it to be that. So I spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm going to do. There's definitely two things that I think that people shouldn't do. The first is just to not have them on the basis of, we'll say we're all busy, or I'll say, look, guys, Really hard term, you've all worked really hard. I'm not going to meet this week. That, as a kind of cop-out, because that gives me less work to do, and actually I'd like to not meet, because it means I've got to plan a meeting. It's so tempting to do that. And I've had that temptation before. A bit like when you teach sick form, it's so tempting to let them go early 10 minutes, because actually you kind of, you know, but just don't do it. <laughs> um, and the other one is, is um, so you've got to make sure that you, you don't, not, not do, the other one is not use it for admin, as, 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 as Matt said. Because it can be, and I'm sure that they wouldn't admit it, but a lot of heads of department do do this deliberately. It can be so, I don't know, tempting. Just so, so what I've done is, guys, I've got the year eight tests. Uh, I'm going to hand out, everyone's going to have two or three. Take take some two or three. And I thought we'd have just a discussion about sort of, is this, this, is, this is actually not too bad, it's pretty bad. But it's not the, about what we're seeing and what we might have to teach differently next year. So Jim opens it and goes, well, they haven't got the expanded bracket questions, right? Of course, that's question one. Oh, look at this. He's put two times two as being five. What kind of... Who taught him? You taught him, Jim, didn't you? Oh, no. And all that kind of banter and calling this a meeting. Again, it's 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 affiliative. It, it means people might like you. People might enjoy the fact you've got a bit of banter. You've got a bit of chat. You're not asking too much of them. But actually, it's 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 not good. So let's try and move away from that. Um, I've done... I've done... I've done lots of things. Um... I've recorded lessons from within the department and asked people to watch the lesson and write down one thing they think is effective 
in the lesson and one question that they may have for the person um, for the person who's teaching. Of course, checking with that person in, in advance. I've had people going off to different rooms and actually teaching. So, you know, all please come along with a lesson that you've taught. I'm not interested in the resource you use. I'm not interested in the starter. You're going to do that little body of teaching, that really, really important five, eight minutes where you taught the class how to expand brackets or how to do a trigonometry question for the first time to the other person. And that person is going to act as a pupil and it's then going to give you feedback. And I made sure I, I did two things. Firstly, I directly addressed the idea of, Guys, let's not banter. Let's not make this. So I'm going to be the naughty pupil for a penalty. All that. Let's not. Let's not do that. Um, let's also make sure that in this time we we actually really give honest, critical, critical feedback to the person that we're that we're that we're working with um, to try and make it as as, as authentic as possible. Um, again, what I was really trying to do, and I've talked to Matt about this a lot, is trying to create that what I call city on tables. Because in my experience working in maths departments, the best conversations often don't actually take place in the formal meetings. They take place at kind of 4.20 when Femi sat on Craig's desk in Craig's room going, Craig, I could not get my year 12, year 13 to understand, you know, the quotient rule. They had no idea. They were mixing it up with integration by parts and all. What do you do on that? Right. OK. OK. Here's what I do. I always start with this. Oh, really? Those kind of But you, you very rarely hear that taking place in the meeting it often goes quite low level so it's trying to recreate that really in a meeting the other thing going back to the teaching of each other thing that i did i went first yeah so i actually taught someone else in the meeting how to factorize a quadratic with everyone watching which was terrifying i didn't want to do it <laughs> because i remember thinking like this is much harder than teaching kids but actually i've got to lead on this and and, and do it first and try and create that and i and i made sure that i prepped her so I said, look, I'm not going to tell you what to say, but can you really give me some really nice pedagogical feedback? And don't sort of say like, oh, I like the fact you're doing it in red. I always <laughs> use blue, but in red's easier to... <laughs> yeah. um, and and, and I, I have managed to create that within the department. I still find it hard. I still don't just kind of walk in and just flow into it as I do a lesson. Well, I couldn't care less. Just walk in, write your A, off we go. I don't have that. But I, but uh, it's, it's, it's better than I've been in before when I, before I was head of department. Oh, this is interesting. This so yeah, a couple of reflections from me. So yeah, obviously no admin is 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 a really smart one. But again, it's scary just how many department meetings are hundred percent admin or start with admin and then you've lost them because if if you're going to do admin, put it at the end for God's sake. You know, get get the good stuff yeah. going at, at the start. I'll tell you. Can, another, I, can I just so, say, yeah, can I just say one other thing? Actually, yeah, sorry. Go. Can I say one other thing? The other thing that I I, I think is really important is. I actually, you know, giving away my tips if my department are listening, I actually script my introduction to the why we're doing this. I write it down on my iPad and I practice it on Sunday night. And my wife comes in, what are you talking to? I'm preparing for tomorrow's meeting. Because I've been in so many meetings, including my own, where somebody with good intentions is trying to introduce something and is suddenly faced with, you know, 12 colleagues or eight colleagues who they respect and who respect them. And it's been a garbled mess. Because they're like, oh, flipping heck. <laughs> you know, or, they, or, they, or they're apologising for, and I'm sorry, sorry, I know that you all know all this. I know you all know all this. But why are you doing it then? If they all know it, they don't all know it. So, so, so I actually script it because I want to make sure that what I say is what I plan to say and not some garbled rubbish <laughs> because I was a bit nervous or a bit put off by the fact they're all looking at me. So I do, I do, I script it. That's interesting. I like that. I like that. Um, I'll tell you something that sounds like it should work, but it never does. Um, yeah, is whenever, um, so I've seen this happen tons of times. 
He's like, right, year nine, we're teaching straight line graphs next week. So everybody bring a resource that they oh, use with year nines. And it's just, does, does it's like a, a show and tell kind of thing. And the, the reason it doesn't work is because people just bring a resource. Nobody has time to digest it or anything. It's like, oh, you know, project up a PowerPoint, like a task. Oh yeah, that looks nice. But you've no time to engage in the mass. All right, next, next person, what have you got? Oh, I've got this worksheet. Right, next, what have you got? I've got this one. And it's just, it's you're just bombarded with stuff. It, it never works, but it sounds like it should do because everyone, yeah. it's teaching and learning related and so on. So, so that doesn't... I, I, I used to go to the Southampton City Council Heads of Maths half-termly meeting, which was on in a hotel or in a school or a hotel for years. And then it went on to Zoom when we went to COVID. And it was exactly that. It was, right, so we're going to finish this meeting with our bring and share. Anyone bought anything? Yeah, I'm Tom Smith. I'm from um, uh, Redbridge School. Uh, I've bought this. This is the Corbett Maths site. We use it a lot. Really good. (laughs) Uh, Lots of questions. Brilliant. Uh, okay, I'm from Woodland School. I've bought along um, Massbox. We use that a lot. Really good. Uh, what, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> Same thing as you just said. Yeah, it, it <laughs> just, yeah sorry. Go on, Matt. What are you saying? Well, no, I was just going to say, I, I think it's worth it's worth diving in a little bit as to why department meetings are actually so challenging um, to be to make them effective. And I think the conclusion I've come to, and come to from speaking to Femi, I don't know what you make of it, Craig, is effectively what you have is a mixed ability group mm, true yeah and, yeah and so so and, and i think this is a, a mistake that schools often make you know schools look at um at, at what's going on around the school and they say okay the school focus for teaching and learning not all schools do this but some schools do this the school focus for teaching and learning is going to be questioning right and so we're going to have everyone in the hall and we're going to get sandra in to do a, a session on questioning but the reality is You've got people in there who are fantastic at questioning and people in there who are terrible and everything in between. And actually, that's not good use of time for some people. And it's not guaranteeing that others will take away from it. So one of the reasons I like what Femi's done um, with kind of pairing his stuff up and getting them to work in pairs is because I think when I think about how you would work with a, a mixed ability group, well, it's breaking it down. It's using the students as a as a resource for their own learning, as Dylan Williams would say. So I, that that for me has some power to it. Um, I, I don't know. What do you what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I I think you're right. Um, and again, I, if I just relate to my own experiences, own experiences supporting schools, the first day I'm in, I'll do everything whole department because there tends to be one thing that everyone can work work on, and again, it tends to be participation. But then days two and three, I'll switch to more individual coaching because, as you say, one size doesn't fit all. Everyone's got different things that they can work on together. And yeah, I've never thought of it that way that departmental meetings, it's just like a regular. Yeah, it's, it's mixed attainment teaching every every single meeting. Yeah, that's a, a really good way of framing it. I'll tell you two things I've seen that, that I think do work. And I'll be interested to get your take yeah. on, on these. Lower your expectations. So Go the away. first is just doing maths, but in a very specific way. I, I don't think as... I don't think enough maths department meetings have teachers actually engaging with 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 the mathematics. So I'll tell you a structure that works quite nicely. Yeah, good, good. I need to know the structure of this. Yeah. So you you pick a t- firstly you've got to be quite quite selective. You, you want to pick some. You want to ideally pick a, a topic that the vast majority of the departments are going to be teaching soon. I think just as a general rule for CPD, the more you can make it, so staff are going to be able to use the work they put in as soon as possible, the more likely they're going to kind of 
put put it into action. So if the vast majority of the department teach year nine and next week year nine are going to be doing angles, then let's base the kind of the maths we're going to do on angles just to reduce any kind of barriers there. So what I tend to do is I'd pick a task that I think is a good task. It wouldn't be, I'm not talking a fluency task here. I'm talking something that's a little bit richer, maybe a Don Stewart task. It could be from anything, but something with something to get your teeth into what I would consider to be kind of purposeful practice. And then what I tend to do is I'll say to staff for the first five minutes, just engage in this task as a mathematician. Forget about pedagogy, just enjoy doing the maths. And if you want to work on your own, absolutely fine. If you find it more comfortable to discuss with the person next to you, absolutely fine. Nobody's going to be put on the spot with answers or anything like that. I just want you to enjoy doing some mathematics. And often just that part of it is quite a refreshing change for a lot of of teachers because they don't get chance to, to simply engage in the maths or whenever they're engaging the maths, they're being asked to do something else on top of it, which takes their attention away from the maths. So get them to engage in the maths first. And then I tend to, after that, I'll, what I used to do is say, okay, let's discuss it, but it's a bit vague. That's why I tend to give um, a kind of two prompts that I think are quite helpful. And that is, I say, imagine you're using this task with your class how would you adapt it? And it may not be adapting the task. It may be adapting something that you yourself would do. How would you support somebody who's struggling to access that task? Would you change the task in some way? Would you offer some scaffold? Would you help? What would be a way if a kid was struggling, you'd help them with it? And then the second thing I'd like you to think about is how would you, what would you do if a kid says, I've finished? or they've, they've, they've solved it or whatever. Where, where are you going next with this? What question would you ask them? What prompt would you give them? And so on. And I find spending kind of five, 10 minutes on that. And again, doing this in a collaborative way, perhaps a bit, almost kind of think per share, a bit of time thinking on your own, have a chat with the person next to you, being very strategic with your pairings here with this. I like to pair sometimes experience with non-experience. I find that works quite well sometimes, but again, you've got to know your personalities with with, with this. But that structure of purely engaging in the maths and then shifting focus to thinking about a class you're going to be using with and kind of putting your teacher pedagogy hat on, I find that can be quite an effective structure. So that'd be structure one. I'll tell you structure two, then I'll shut up and you can come back at me on this. So that'd be structure one. Structure two would be involving diagnostic questions, which I'm obviously a bit obsessed with but I do it in a very specific way. So again, I'd pick a topic ideally that everybody's teaching or the vast majority of teachers are teaching, but it doesn't have to be for this particular instance. And what I do is I say, all right, everybody get a piece of paper. Um, On one side of the piece of paper, I'd like you to write a question that, and it tends to be like a, what I call core knowledge. So a question that you'd hope everyone in your class by the end of a lesson will be able to get right. So write a question. Um, And on the back of the piece of paper, I'd like you to turn that into a diagnostic question by writing the right answer and what you consider to be three of the most common wrong answers. So if someone was going to go wrong with this question, where would they go wrong? So front of the paper question, back of the paper, A, B, C, D, one's right, three are wrong. And then what you do is you swap the piece of paper. You give the piece of paper to the person next to you, but you just give them the question side up. And their challenge is to get your question right and then think, what would their three wrong answers be? What, what, where do they reckon kids would go wrong with this question? And that takes, you know, five minutes, whatever. And then you turn the pages over and you, you see what answer did I pick? What answer did my colleagues pick? And I, 
every single time I do this, it leads into a really productive conversation. Of things like, well, I've seen kids do this because of this. Oh, right. Well, I hadn't thought of that. What do you do in that case? Oh, well, I tell them to do this or I use this resource or this explanation. It focuses that conversation purely on pedagogy and it gets rid of all the banter, all the chat, all the kind of airy-fairy stuff. And it gets people talking about misconceptions, mistakes, how they resolve them and so on. So I find those two tasks quite good to do in, well, a fair few departments anyway, but I'd be interested in your, in your take on those. The, the, sec, the second one I've got the answer to already, so I don't need to... But the first one, a question me and Matt ask ourselves a lot on the pod and also just generally is... how The, the angles example. Yep. Two two things. First is, how, how does that make my daughter's day tomorrow better in maths? Because you've done that. So What's the, what, what are you thinking it's going to do? Yeah. Okay. So it kind of relates back to a little, little thing that we were talking about before with the, the idea of a good resource. It's the task needs to be a carefully selected one, but as we all know, a good task in the wrong hands with no thought attached to it is an absolute yeah. waste of time. Yeah. Here you kind of get the both best of both worlds. You get the good task, but you almost, you force the thought into the task as well because staff have had an opportunity to do the maths themselves, which sometimes is enough in itself to start thinking how they're going to use it effectively. But then I find those two prompts quite good for staff thinking about tailoring this resource to get the most out of it. And what happens most of the time is staff are then, almost kind of 100% of the time, staff then use that resource because they've, they've put a bit of planning into it. It's almost kind of good to go. They've always got kind of 20, 25 minutes of their lesson planned. And then they start thinking, how am I going to shape my explanations so that my kids can access this and so on? So I I tend to think it has quite a direct kind of positive impact yeah. on, on kids' yeah. experience yeah. the next day. Okay, yeah, I can see that. And the, the, the other question mm. was, how do you start? I, I don't say this because I think I've got a problem with what you're saying. I've had this <laughs> yeah, problem, yeah, right? Yeah. How do you stop people just kind of geeking out and going, oh, oh we could use this. Oh, and it's actually lovely, brilliant, brilliant. But actually... We're trying to get better at instructing children here, not just geeking about some math questions. Yeah, it's really good. And that's why the, the splitting of the two kind of components to this, I think, works really well. So, yeah. you know, do the maths yourself, have a mess around with it, whatever. But then I insist on those two prompts. And you're right, the geeking out bit could come with what do we do for challenge? You know, you can imagine some teachers who that's their favorite thing to think about, right? Because they love maths yeah. themselves. So I could ask this yeah. question and this question and this question, this question. Okay, that's great. But what about the other prompts? What are you going to do when the kid's struggling? How are you going to help them access it there? And that then kind of brings them back down to earth. The, yeah. They've got to think about both scenarios. Yeah. The, yeah. the challenge yeah. on its own, if anything, that's the easy bit, right? The hard bit yeah. is how you get all kids to get something out of this task, especially the yes. ones who are struggling. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's what, what I what I like about that, I think, um, Craig, is that what you seem to be doing in doing that task is developing teachers' understanding of mathematical learning, um, of of how to of of the pedagogy of mathematics. Because many maths teachers are are fantastic at maths, and in some some cases that's almost the problem. Yeah. you know, it's easy yeah, for yeah. them. It was always easy for them, and so thinking about like what would you do to support someone who's struggling or how do you how would you make this an extension task actually forces them to to think of it from a different place um but so what what one of the things we're always talking about and femi was alluding to it then is is how do you 
how do you make the the CPD have a long term sustained impact? And and that for me is 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 you know this this opens the door to the whole com- conversation about coaching, which you you touched on a minute ago. But that's that's the filter that I, I like to run the CPD through. That when I'm just kind of thinking about what I might do and when when, when I'm planning, like will will this be useful? Will people be doing something differently in two weeks' time, in five weeks' time, as a result of this session? And what? And, and the answer is in isolation, almost certainly not. No matter what you do. Yep. But so, what kind of what kind of follow up? What kind of sequence of training are you putting together as a head of department uh, in order to kind of make that happen? And so, I would I would just say that's one of the things I've learned, and that I would encourage other heads of department to think about is thinking about CPD as an ongoing, um, carefully sequenced thing in the, in the way you think of a, a curriculum of, of mathematics. Like how do you build and develop and recap over time uh, and what support do you put in place uh, in between sessions? Yeah, I, I think you're right. The, 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 yeah, the, the follow-up stuff is so important to this. And again, if I just kind of share, just going back to this idea of the the, the, the doing the maths task all together and then the, the thinking about the, the stretch and the support where that works really well and again this sounds a bit corny to say it sounds like I'm talking absolute nonsense here is um, if departments meet let's say every two weeks if you do this every meeting staff almost kind of look forward to it because it appeals to everybody this if you've got a really keen member of staff they're enjoying this because they enjoy doing the maths they enjoy thinking about the pedagogy and so on But if you've got a bit of a lazy member of staff, they're loving this as well, right? Because they're getting a bit of planning done here. They're getting a task that they know they can use and they they can get a few ideas for using it and so on. And it's not always, you know, it's not always going to work and so on. But the fact that you're doing a bit of work for them or they're kind of, you know, gaining a bit of kind of planning as a result of it means that actually they're much more likely to put it into, into, into action than they would do if you kind of left them on, the, on their own to kind of try out and find resources and so on. So if you get into a bit of a cycle with this, and it's like anything, then people get quicker at doing it because they're used to the, the kind of structure of the meeting. Oh, yeah, we always start our meeting with, yeah, we know yeah, that right. Femi's going to put up this problem on the board. We're going to dive straight into the math. Then we're going to be discussing these two things. You get into this routine with it, and then you, you can you can play around with it. It's Yeah, I, I think it's quite a tight structure for, 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 for doing this kind of thing. And then you start to see the long-term benefits of it because it instills a couple of things in staff first it makes them realize and this is the most obvious thing in the world that it's a really good idea to do the maths that the kids are going to be doing and not enough teachers do this they they look at maths and think oh i know how to do that but it's only when you do it that you notice the subtleties of it the the little quirks that are in there so it, it hopefully develops that habit but then it also develops the habit of thinking about adaptation and regardless of whether you're going down the consistency route or the autonomy route that we talked about before, that thought process to think, how do I adapt this for my learners is going to be invaluable. And if you can build that in explicitly into your departmental meetings, I, I think you're onto a winner. So I, I think it can work for that, if that makes sense. I'll tell you one thing that I think it makes a difference to, to this sharing good practice. And we, we've, we've talked about this earlier on, but there's kind of two parts to this. So whenever I do coaching, one thing that I've found particularly powerful, and it's kind of the key part of the coaching conversation, is whenever I present what I call critical evidence to the, um, to, to the coachee. 
Exactly, yeah. So if I've taken a picture of the board or a picture of some kid's work or something yeah, like yeah, that, that, it's kind of this... It's this yeah. objective thing that the teacher can look at and think, oh yeah, actually that isn't going the way I thought it was. Right, I'm ready to make a change. Now the next level up from this, and this is going back to what I think both of you have talked about, is video. And I think video is an absolute game changer for this. Because if you can video either good practice, and good practice can be from another member of your team, or it can be if it's kind of poor practice, if it kind of comes from you, and it can be something like a, I think you said before, Matt, like a match of the day analysis kind of thing on this, then again, it's this kind of irrefutable evidence. It's something tangible. Instead of talking kind of wishy-washy, we need to boost participation, we need to increase challenge, blah, 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 we need to do this, do that. Here's a tangible thing that we can all look at, an image or a video. I think that can be a super powerful way of kind of sharing good practice around the department. Is this something you've kind of regularly used or like to use more or got any kind of thoughts on that at all? It, it, it is, it is. But I think in a way, before we discuss that, we've almost got to talk about how you create a culture with some with one person where when you talk to them about the quality of their teaching, they're leading forward. Because yeah, that good. is hard to do, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. it's almost like there are three different types of teacher, broadly speaking. There are ones that are very effective, who probably actually often quite enjoy some kind of discussion about their teaching because they're already quite skilled at it. There are ones that are very novice, and as a result, it's quite easy to say to the ECT on week two, by the way, I'm going to be coming to your lessons weekly and giving you, oh, okay, I guess that's how it's done here. But then there are ones who are sort of um, allegedly, well, they are experienced, but they're ineffective. And that's the hardest group I find to reach. So getting to a point where you can actually be having these conversations where you're showing them a video or... Because in a way, I, find, I found your conversation with Adam Boxer really, really um, uh, interesting. And I know that he does do a lot of what he talks about in his own school as well. But what I was sort of thinking a lot as I was listening to it is what you guys are doing in a way is kind of just, you know, going into a school as reasonably now, you know, big names have written books and stuff and, be, and, and, and people are being told you're going to spend a bit of time at Craig Button. I'm assuming that to a certain degree, people do lean forward or at least look like they're leaning forward because they're talking with Craig Button. What's very hard for, for Sally, the 29-year-old new head of the department, working with Jim, who's in his 40th year of teaching, is getting any kind of like reaction out of him or any kind of improvement. You know, before she even talks about how she's going to do that, it's how she creates the conditions to do that. And it is hard. I'm not saying I'm about to give the answer, but it's tricky, isn't it? It's a really, really interesting point. Yeah, I think it is. And I, again, I, I can talk from my experience to a, a certain extent here because what, what sometimes happens is I'll get brought into a department and... I'll be asked to do some coaching and some of the members of the department will be super keen for that. They're keen to learn, they're eager, blah, blah, blah. Some members of the department, that is the last thing they want to, want to do. And I'll sit in there and, and sometimes, again, it'll, sometimes it'll be very experienced members of staff who perhaps are kind of stuck in a bit of a rut. Often <laughs> I had one where it was a guy who was on SLT and he'd kind of, for that reason, he'd kind of gone under the radar for a while and I watched his teaching and it wasn't great. And I thought we we're going to have quite a tricky conversation here with this. And I found personally the kind of best way to, yeah, to, yeah. to do it. I mean, what definitely yeah. doesn't work yeah. is what I did for many years is, uh, is where you say things like, yeah. right, yeah. I watch you do your modeling. I don't think it was that great. I would have done it like this. As soon as you start saying that, forget it, forget it. Because I'm not, you're not me. I don't care what you would have done. I did it this way, forget it. But as soon as you start, what, what works for me is kind of a bit of humility is about kind of saying, right, do you know what? I, I What you did there, God, I've done that tons of times myself. And do you know what? 
I used to think everything was fine, but then I noticed that this was happening. And I'll tell you what, if you don't mind me saying, I noticed this too in your lesson. And again, that's where you can kind of present this critical evidence. And as I think if you kind of present it in a way that obviously nobody's perfect, I'm certainly not perfect. I've done tons of mistakes. You do a million things better than I did, but there was just this one thing that I noticed you do. And I, I wonder if we could just talk about this a little bit. That's kind of the way in, certainly that I found anyway, um, to get, and I really like that phrase for me, to get them leaning forward because a lot of teachers' default reaction in those situations, they feel quite vulnerable. They don't want to be there. And it can be, it can be really uncomfortable. You guys must have, yeah, kind do, of come do, up. Do you have any, I mean, I'm, and this isn't, I'm not saying this is a criticism. I want, I'm, I'm, I want you yeah. to the answer to this. Do you have any evidence that, that this stuff leads to any change? <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that it's not just, we had a great time with Craig Barney. Yeah, came, you know, yeah, he yeah. has a book on, I love you. How do you, do you, do you know, does it do anything? Yeah, sometimes sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Right, okay. um, the the reason I know is I go back. I yeah. always ask. Like I I've stopped doing these one off things now. I used to do a lot where I turn up, do a nice yeah. talk, you get paid yeah. a fair bit of money, everyone has a good time, and then you go away and you've no idea if anything's going to change at all. Whereas now I'm much more interested in long term relationships with departments where I can regularly come back and and see change, and. Again, it's 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 hit and miss, but you you tend to get a decent idea of of the teachers who are going to put the thing into practice and the teachers who are just kind of kind of nodding along for 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 the sake of it. And the department play the head of department has a big role to play in this because I say to them, look, I'm going to be gone, you know, tomorrow or whatever. I'm not going to be back for two or three weeks. What system have you got in place to do two things? Firstly, to check that change is happening because I get all teachers to agree to something that they're going to try and we plan it together. So what systems are in place to, to check that this is happening kind of for the first time, that's almost the easy bit. But now how are you going to sustain that? What's going to be the reflection when you all kind of get back together? How's that going to happen? And the burden of that has to be on the head of department because I, I don't, I don't kind of work in that school and that's difficult. And I'd be interested from you guys, like, yeah, how do you kind of keep tabs on this kind of thing, right? Without it being like you're keeping tabs on it, if that makes sense. How do you do that in a kind of positive way to to ensure that changes that teachers have agreed to and kind of need to make actually are, are enacted in the classroom? Yeah, I, I think this this conversation gets right to the underpinning philosophy of of different approaches to coaching, right? And um, one of so Jim Knight's book, The Impact Cycle, I, that's been hugely influential for me. I can't say enough about it. Um, and maybe we'll talk about coaching a little bit more uh, in a minute. But to go back to the the fundamental question of like, how do you get people leaning forward? You know, my experience there isn't one answer necessarily, and I found the the will skill matrix quite useful. So you know, Femi used the same words when he talked about what is it? Employ the will teach the skill or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But if you think of a, the will-skill matrix, you know, on the x-axis you've got will, which is sort of motivation, and on the y-axis you've got skill, which let's say competency, you can you can break that broadly into four quadrants. So you might have someone like a, a trainee or an NQT who's very motivated, engaged, enthusiastic, but hasn't got a lot of skill at, the, at this moment. Um, and then you might have someone like you described who... Um, Who's perhaps got a lot of skill? They're they're an assistant head teacher, and they've been doing this over a long time. And they actually they actually do have a great deal of experience, but they're not motivated. They're not turning up. They're not really planning their lessons. Those do require different approaches, you know. And the and the the trainee um, might respond well to some mentoring, as as Femi said, some clear guidance and some mentoring. 
Um, whereas the the fish, fixing the issue with the the low will, uh, you know, you might turn to things like the um, Dan Pink's work on the drive the the uh, intrinsic motivation, so which is which is around autonomy, mastery, and um, purpose. And so you might start to look at those factors. And I think it 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 gets into trying to understand people individually. And then of course you've got the low will, low skill corner. You know, that's that's a nightmare. But but actually that's where the non-negotiables come in. The very clear guidance. Mm. This is what you will do. This is you know, and the, the the this is the steps you need to follow, and this is when you need to do it by. And I will check. And so to then tie that back to your question about sort of follow on and accountability, it, it depends where people are in that matrix. And if you're in that process of low skill, low will, and you're trying to move someone out of that quadrant, I think it's very clear. It's, you have to be very robust with those. And, you know, down to the point of that's, that those, those are the people where you end up in accountability um, com- competency proceedings. And those are very clear, very um, structured processes, and they have to be. Um, but equally, if you're working with the NQT, you know, that might be a, a different approach. Um, and similarly, the, the person who's got the high skill but low will, you know, like that's a coaching conversation of really trying to dig into where's, where have you lost your passion for this? How do we reignite that fire under your backside? You know, what, what kind of res- perhaps that person needs more responsibility. Perhaps they need uh, more of a sense of purpose. Perhaps they need they're feeling hamstrung by the non-negotiables. Perhaps they need a bit more recognition to, um, to be more autonomous. So there's a whole science out there, and I, I don't think there's any harm in heads of department arming themselves with some of the some of the literature, some of the things that people have, who've faced these problems for hundreds of years have figured out. And to add to add to, add to that, the the high will, high skilled people. Well, they're listening to this podcast. They're listening to the podcast, and they're also the people that you can then use to help do that with you. So actually, you know, Sarah, I think you'd be great at coaching Tina, who's similar kind of age to you, same sex, has maybe experience some of the problems that you maybe had when you first came into teaching i'm seeing some of the things in her lessons that i used to see in yours but you're now up here doing some great stuff can i ask you to do some coaching with her now when you get that that that's fantastic i've only had that a couple of times when you start to be able to use other people to help you grow um the the, the department um but i would agree it's a different approach with different people um yeah what you mustn't do and this comes back to my thing of my greatest failure is just shy away to it and say that's just jim he just does what he does might leave soon, uh, you know. What I mean, very difficult character. That's 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 shoddy, really. Um, and you do see that happening. But part of the reason why you see that happening is people aren't trained in how to have these conversations and how to take these people on. Or also, or also, sometimes um, I'm not going to take Jim on because Jim's difficult, mm. and I know I won't get the support from anybody else. So it to be me versus Jim, he will win. <laughs> you know. Yep. It's interesting. I think there's, there's there's two bits I'd like to dig into a bit deeper here in terms of supporting staff. So one, just to pick up on that conversation, um, Femi, I think one thing that's, I mean, it's probably true of all subjects, but I think it's more true of maths or more likely to occur in maths, is that often you have members of SLT who are part of the maths department. It just seems, seems to be the way, yeah. in my experience anyway. So you'll have somebody who's an assistant head who teaches a bit of maths, somebody who's a deputy head who teaches a bit of Maybe they do the timetable and they teach a bit of maths. And they can be, they, that can be quite toxic sometimes because if, they, if, they, if the head of maths feels a bit undermined by them or 
doesn't feel in a position that they can essentially kind of tell them to do what the rest of the maths department's doing and they become a bit of a law unto themselves. I've seen that happen quite a few times and it's almost like, right, okay, I know they're kind of doing their own thing, but let's just ignore that. I need you to do this. And, and that can be quite difficult. So that's that's one scenario I'm interested in. And the other scenario that I am sure is more prevalent in maths than anywhere else is, is the lack of, is the prevalence of non-subject specialists and that's kind of the age that we live in at the moment that again very rarely do I go into a department where key stage three in particular is staffed by all math specialists it tends to be a mixture of, of all sorts and I was in a school fairly recently and they've got a scheme of work where they're trying to we, we kind of retweet the scheme of work together me and the head of department and the second department and we, there was no, um, essentially no challenge in the scheme of work. It was all fluency. So every lesson, the kids were just doing fluency practice, fluency practice. And I'm a big fluency practice advocate, but it never went beyond there. So we shifted kind of focus towards some lessons we're going to have these kind of kind of big tasks for want of a better word, a kind of Don Stewart thing, the, the kind of thing we talked about before, where there was a bit of, there was problem solving involved. There was something a bit more interesting going on. But the biggest barrier there was then a lot of the well, all of the non-specialist staff said well, we we're not we can't do this because we we don't feel confident enough in the maths in our mathematical ability to be able to cope with a student coming up with an answer that I don't have on an answer sheet and wanting to know whether it's right or wrong. Whereas what we do feel very comfortable with is projecting up ten questions where we can project up the answers and the kids can kind of mark them themselves. So I wonder in those two scenarios, well, if you've experienced in them, so just to recap for listeners, the one where you've got a member of SLT there who's kind of a law unto themselves and the head of department feels a bit undermined by that. And two this real big problem where you've got non-subject specialists who f don't feel confident enough in their mathematical ability to perhaps do some of the things that you want them to do in lessons. Because what, what I have seen happen before is that a young head department, you'll be talking to them in the car park before you go, hey, how, what's it like line managing Tom, deputy head? Oh, it's a nightmare. I introduced exit tickets a month ago. Won't do them, doesn't do them. Ask everyone to come to a meeting with their tickets, show what they were doing, didn't bring anything, nightmare. He's your strongest teacher. Just don't don't forget that. Don't lose everything in in the I'm trying to introduce XYZ, I'm trying to take the department this way, and forget about who's doing the job best for you, who's instructing the children best in your department. Now, don't get me wrong, there has to be some kind of conversation with him and some kind of discussion about what his values are, why he's not doing it, what can be done to help him support is it you know but but don't just lose everything in 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 SLT won't follow the directives that I've sending out in my department therefore I'm annoyed by them because that can create this kind of us versus them kind of mentality in the department which I see a lot I bet you see it a lot as well well it would be right here Craig one of my bloody SLT who don't know what the good math teaching is you know we don't we don't we don't want that there has to be some kind of link between them so um yeah challenge but also Go and see what people are doing because maybe he's not doing it because there's another way of um, checking for understanding at end of a lesson that's being used that you could describe and talk to the department about or even maybe he could in a meeting or something to show that the why we must check people understand before they leave is the important thing, not the you must use exit tickets with the same logo that I've put, uh, I spent age cutting out this weekend. That's not what's important. It's the why. Do you know what I mean? 
It's interesting. I did, no, I'm with you there. And what about the non-specialists? What 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 are you doing there? Who who feel lack of confidence with the subject? Well, I, I I don't necessarily buy this thing about sort of there are there are specialists us those that know those that understand those that can teach and then there's everyone else. I I kind of buy that actually there are there are people that understand young people and how they learn and how they progress, and there's everybody else. And as, and if you're in the first camp. But you're a PE teacher. In my view, I can work with that. I can help build some um, some mathematical understanding through sitting with you and giving you my time, which is what you know differentiation is, as Matt said. That, in a way, is easier to deal with than the specialist who's been doing this for thirty years. He doesn't do anything. So, so when I have had that, and I've been lucky, I haven't had it that often. I have met with people and actually spent time talking with them and helping them understand maths and okay you know what is a third and that's what I didn't really get from me I tried to teach you I didn't know what it was someone asked me I didn't know you know that, that, that's that sort of thing that can be done and I don't mind doing that if the understanding of how to get kids moving forward and get them engaged in learning something new is there what you don't want is when that's not there and the knowledge, and the, and the knowledge isn't there but you effectively haven't got a teacher you've just got you've just got a human <laughs> you know what I mean? But but having having I mean it's a very real problem that Craig descri- describes, right? You have non specialists who are teaching in your department and they feel quite anxious about the limit of their knowledge and you know they they either either with certain tasks that have become more complex or um brighter students or whatever it might be. And I think for me this is where, you know, schools have to make a commitment to um to upskill those teachers and there's you know there's plenty of subject knowledge enhancement courses for non-specialists there are maths transition courses and it, it's like if you're a school and you can't recruit maths teachers or you you can't afford to or you've chosen not to to staff all the lessons you want to have on the timetable um you you have you owe it to those members of staff to do as much as you can to provide them training uh there's there's just no two ways about it um, and then it, it, I think your role as a head of department will depend on that person, but it's, it's how do you interface with that training, link up multiple training sessions, ensure that what they've learned carries into lessons, that, that find the right resource, right? Or, or, or you know, or the, or the lesson. It's, it's like, it's, it's so much harder to look through a scheme of work in a subject that you don't know to find what comes next. Than, than we think it is as people who are familiar with all that stuff. So just making, I think, making time to do that with them, you know, a, make, week, a weekly meeting is, is Yeah, is making pretty time, useful. a weekly meeting, and also maybe thinking about what the limitations of that person might be at this one time. So you talked about, you know, all they were doing is they were kind of doing 10 questions, putting up the answers. If they're, if they're doing that in a way that it's got engagement and, and they're comfortable with at the moment, and they're not a subject expert specialist, and it's year one teaching maths as well as leading, let's say, PE. Maybe just take that and not have these grand, grand ideas about how they're going to get to do these rich tasks. And just, maybe that's just okay for year seven middle set for now. You know, I think there are a lot. I think there are a lot of heads around the heads of department around the country who would who would take that right now. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. It is yeah. a fair point. Yeah. All right. So our kind of penultimate section i'm calling challenges so we've got five challenges some of which we've kind of covered little bits of so feel free to to give briefer answers to these but we'll go through them one at a time so challenge number one is and i like this one how do you deal with directives from slt that you don't agree with 
who fancies taking that one? Well, we probably both have something to say. I think we probably have quite different approaches to this, actually, on some level. Um, I would split them into two, uh, two, two, two categories. So there are things that uh, SLT ask us to do reasonably often that are just they just make no difference, right? They, they, they're annoying. I don't agree with them because they're pointless. Let's say something like that. You might feel that way. And then there are things that you're asked to do that are actively in opposition to what you think good practice um, might be in the department. So an example of the former would be, I don't know, perhaps you need, perhaps they want everyone to do a, um, a, a literacy reading audit for the subject. What, what, what books do you have students read? Um, in the subject and it's like okay I'm not sure that's going to be the most important thing we need to devote our brain power to in mathematics don't get me wrong a big push for literacy I think it's hugely important but it, you know it, it doesn't come up I don't want to get too often a tangent or controversial but you know it's, it's not the core of what we're, what we're doing um, whereas an example of the latter might be the marking policy right it's a classic one so perhaps there's a a whole school marking policy which is being imposed, which actively goes against principles of good marking and feedback in mathematics. Now on the on the first type, for me, you know, I'm very I'm very um rational about my approach to this. It's like if it's gonna take me an hour and speaking to three members of staff and raised cortisol levels for a week to fight it and twenty minutes just to do it, I'll just do it. And, and even more so, if I think it's it's just not going to be looked at or chased up, I just won't do it. <laughs> you know? But with the second one, that's where things are much more interesting for me. And, and there I think there's, you know, firstly, I would say it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, in my in my in my view, just going in and banging the table and, and trying to win that argument in in one is not going to happen. You have to engage in a process of educating those people. Um, you have to engage in a process of uh, of uh, understand how minds change, right? Which means I've got to understand your point of view to your satisfaction before you'll even open the doors to mine, um, and it's relationships. So I think, you know, that that's my that's my high level take on on that problem. Yeah, I think I think in in, in agreement really. I think quite often I will take the load of things that fit into Matt's first category which are things that are I think quite unimportant but have been asked for that I can get sorted myself very quickly <clears throat> so quite often something will come out that's like we'd like maths to do xyz and I straight away look at it and think completely pointless meaningless I will often do it myself email out the department and say this is what's been asked for this is what I'm suggesting we do please let me know if anyone has any, anything they'd like to add surprisingly <laughs> because it's a please let me know if you'd like to nobody ever does and in my, in my view then maths, we've, we've done it maths have done it because I've done it yeah. I've asked the team for their agreement on it it's done by email not in a meeting yeah. because I want to use meetings for what we've talked about and I don't really want people just to moan on about how rubbish SLT are because I know I read the, I read the initial email so I've just, I've just we've done that um, that's how I have to get around that one and then, yeah, like like Matt says, it's not about going and banging tables. Um, we we say that through hard won experience. Yeah, right? it's not. Yeah, not sitting here like Yoda just just knows this stuff. <laughs> uh, it's because I've tried that approach. Found <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. There's a great. There's a great. Um, I've told, told Matt's heard this before. There's a great debate between a Christian and an atheist that I've watched on YouTube, 
and the Christian gets asked at the end how he enters into these debates and how he deals with these kind of quite difficult debates with, with, with people. And he says something that I use a lot in this kind of scenario. He says, I don't go into these debates with the objective of trying to win because you might win, but you might do so at the expense of credibility. And I think that's so important that you don't come out, yes, guys, I've sorted it. We no longer have to do mass marketing policy, but I've broken every relationship with anyone in SLT that I'll ever know. <laughs> and, I, and I say, as Matt says, I've done that. I've, been, I've, I've made that error. So um, I, I try and th- think about that and, 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 and change um, does take place over a, lo- over a long period of time. But I think, I think you do have to be prepared to go and have these conversations. And I think that if you are prepared to go and have these conversations... It's very important you don't do it in a very sort of um, a grand, grand way to tell your team, I've gone and told them and I, you know, they're rubbish and we're not. And that's, and again, I've made that mistake. <laughs> so, and I've seen people make that mistake. So I think, I'm, you know, I'm representing yeah, yeah. you guys. Again, that's quite an affiliative approach. I want you to like me. So I've told you that I've gone and fought your corner in front of SLT that you wouldn't dare go and speak to. That's why people do that. So go and do it honestly and humbly. Yeah, I think, I think it speaks... To my mind, it speaks volumes about the head of maths who's the team doesn't know just exactly how many things they've yeah. pushed back and and you know because it's just they're doing it all the time in conversations or as as Femi said as I said I'll just do it myself because it would just take twenty minutes and get it done yeah and so they they just don't people don't realise what's actually coming down from SLT yeah. I'll give you one thing I absolutely don't do and and this is this is coming from being you know, when in my in my years sat on around the table as a teacher with a head of department who did do this, is just say, ah, oh, guys, SLT have asked us to do this, yeah. and oh, it's ridiculous. I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it, but we've got to do it because SLT have asked for it. For me, no, that's that, that's a real weakness there. Either take it take it on with them, and if you can't change that, come to an understanding of what it is that matters to SLT about why they want you to do this. There will be reasonable reasons for it. You know, it might be misplaced, it might be misguided, but get get to an understanding of why they want to do it and and then come back to the team and, and sell that, explain that. You don't have to sell it, it's the wrong word, but explain that. Um, or, you know, push back on, on it with SLT, but, but don't sit around the table with your team and say, I, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it. They're ridiculous, but we have to do it. So, you know. That's really, really strong advice. That. I really like that. Um, challenge two is related to this. And I've got a little story here. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you the question and I'll tell you my story. Um, what do you do to help non-specialists, particularly SLT, understand what the characteristics of high quality teaching and learning in maths are? So here's my story about this. So I was in a school and... Uh, uh, I was meeting with SLT, a non-math specialist who was the line manager of maths, which is always a bit of a recipe for disaster um, in, in my experience. And she said to me, we've got a problem in maths um, because I was watching a lesson the other day and the kids were given this set of questions to work through. It was on expanding brackets and pretty much every question looked the same. There was just <laughs> one thing changing from question one to question two, question two to question three. I was like, right, so have you got the question? She said, yeah, I took a picture. So obviously it was off my variation theory website. And I tried to explain. I said, no, the, the design that way on purpose. And I tried to explain about reflect, expect, check, explain, and so on. But she'd gone in and you can understand it, right? 
you, it looks like lazy questioning. What you've just they all look the same. There's no no interesting context, no real life scenario. What the hell's going on in maths and so on? So there'd clearly been a lack of communication there, or something had gone wrong because she'd come away from that lesson thinking it was you know really terrible practice and, and blah 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 blah. So that's a specific case, but I I, I see this a lot where non non specialist SLT line managers or whoever fail to see the subtlety perhaps of what how effective teaching and learning is in maths. Have you experienced this and, and how do you deal with yeah. it? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think yeah. this this will be, this is this was job number one, you know, when you take on a new school, I think probably. And it, it's a process of education, of educating people. Um, and I don't, I, I haven't been able to do it in a single conversation, but that that is about um, ex- being able to articulate why you, why the things that uh, work, work. And, uh, I, I've had, I've done it by inviting those people to come to my lessons, come and see it in action. And then I'm ta- I'll talk them through it live while the kids are working. I'll say, look, this is what's happening. Um, and they'll see it in action. But I'll also talk to them about it afterwards. And it's an ongoing process because just talking to someone, just talking at someone, just letting them see things doesn't mean that they've absorbed it to the to the same level you have. So like anything, I think it's a, it's a process of kind of collaborative um, education for that that person, and and again, marathon, not a sprint. I mean, to give you an example of this, of, of why of how it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, my my head, when I became a head of department, there was a whole school marking policy, which really was just um, very one size fits all. And what people were doing in maths is they were they were technically meeting the requirements of that marking policy and the feedback um, and the use of the uh, of the work to plan lessons was very poor so it would be much easier there was much better ways we could do it in maths and so that conversation to go from that bespoke that sorry that one size fits all to a bespoke um, maths has its own marking policy it took like three years (laughs) you know and and it was a long process and it involved me drafting that and going through it with the team and holding you know holding that standard to and then bringing heads assistant heads and deputy heads in to show them what was good and what and keep going back to the head and trying to understand what his what fears were driving him to not let go of of the one size fits all thing and it, it just it you just have to persevere with that stuff but um yeah, educate, 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 I would say. What is good in teaching at the moment, though, I think, is that there are there are far more things out there which are talking sense, you know? Um, Tom Bennett, who we spoke to quite recently, said that education until about 15 years ago was how medicine was a couple of hundred years ago, where it was just people to do whatever they wanted... <laughs> And there was maybe one really good doctor in North London who knew how to do this, whatever, but he didn't tell anyone else. And someone else had no idea. And that's how we were. Whereas now, actually, you would be able to help move an SLT member who wasn't anything to do with maths towards some literature or some podcast material that was reinforcing probably what you were saying. Because it is out there quite readily. And it wasn't even 15 years ago. Um now, we then come down to, is that person going to invest any time in actually doing that? Or are they just going to keep driving forward what they think? But you can then begin to have conversations. So with the colleague that you talked about or the person you were working with, you can say things like, you know, just want to double check 
what you've done to ensure that you understand what math, good math teaching yeah. it is. Well, I haven't. I've just used my knowledge of English teaching to... Uh, that's that's then a bit shaky ground, isn't it? Um, so that's that's another thing that, that can can help. Yeah, the, the other thing in there, I mean, that's just tease up very nicely, is I think the, the onus of line managers to learn about the subjects they line manage I mean, my, I, I've, I've, I've had to line manage um, computing, computer science, as well as maths. And I don't know anything about teaching computer science. I did some programming when I was younger, but that's about it. So there's a real onus to go and find out what is good pedagogy in that subject. I mean, there are principles across all subjects, but really, what does it look like? How? What is the latest conversation on work scrutiny in computer science? It's extremely challenging. And so not going in with the idea that, well, it should be just like what's in my comfort zone or what's in familiar to me. Um, so hopefully, you know, if there, if there are any um, senior leaders listening to this, that they'll, they'll feel that um, responsibility to, to educate themselves in the subject specific needs of, of the subjects they line manage. Fantastic. All right. Challenge number three is something, again, we've, we've danced around um, throughout this conversation, but it'd be good to tackle it head on. How do you deal with difficult members of the department who are reluctant to make changes? Emmy. With difficulty. Next <laughs> question. <laughs> <laughs> but it is hard, isn't it? Of course. It's, it's, it's really hard. What is that line that Tom Bennett used? He talks about um, non-competent leaders versus incompetent leaders. So a lot of the work that he does, he says, is, is with people who, it's not that they can't um, lead or deal with difficult people, it's that they haven't been trained to. So he used the example of like a pilot. He's a, he's a non-competent pilot because he can't fly a plane because no one's ever taught him. It's not that he's been trained to do it and then can't do it. It's that he, no one's ever shown him. And he says he comes across this lots in schools. And I can relate to that. You know, I, I remember a conversation quite recently with a, with a language teacher, a head of languages this was in the school that I was, someone I was talking to. And she just said something like, yeah, well, you know, I've got someone in my team which is completely useless. Um, and that's not, that's not my, that's not my job, is it? I've, I've, I've referred it up to SLT. And, and, and she had managed to convince herself this was nothing to do with her. She was there to order the stationery and the bits and pieces and do the exam entries. And, and I think that's actually quite a common sentiment amongst heads of the department. So with difficulty, but what I don't do is to shy away from having those conversations. Um, I quite often in my week will say to myself, oh, quite last week actually, it's got to Wednesday. I haven't really had to go and have a conversation with anyone that I found difficult before I walked into the room. And then something comes up and I was like, right, I've got one. So I'm going to do it today. I'm going to do it. And, and I used to maybe shy away from that in my earlier days and try and gloss it a little bit more around kind of, you know, affiliative for all. We, we all know what good teaching is, Jim. I know you just didn't do it today, but if you could, you know, it's, it's, it's not that, is it? Um, so being willing to go and have conversations, as Matt said, Sonia Gill's work um, on, was it difficult S conversations? Successful, successful conversations in schools. in schools. Successful, difficult conversations in schools. Read that. She talks a lot about sort of scripting your opening line. That's often the hardest thing is how you're going to open this conversation. I've noticed that, Craig, you're letting your classes go a long way before the bell. I want us to get to a point where all of us in the department are letting our class go at the designated time. Um, what can I do to help you get closer to something, something like that? And then just stopping, pausing. Because one thing I used to do a lot, probably doing it now, was over talk. <laughs> and so I know it's so difficult. And I know you're tired. 
<laughs> and actually just stopping and letting someone come back with what they want to say. Um, but it isn't easy, and it's so much easier to, to go on the side of affiliate team. Let's all we all know what good teaching is. It's them that don't. SLT, or it's those kids, it's those parents. Terrible. Don't have to raise children. No, that's affiliative. I'm going to go and have these conversations. Yeah, F- for me, um, a, a useful thing to think about is to just keep going down the levels until you find common ground. So you know, someone someone may be being difficult because you've asked them. To, to take a particular pedagogical approach, right? So it might be it might be starters, right? Just just I want you to to make a, write starters yourself, um, or it might be marking books. I want you to write. I want you to mark the test yourself, not get the kids to do it. That's, that's all I ask. And they may disagree with that. Rather than butting heads over that, I think it's worth you know navigating down to find a common ground of agreement. Well you know, do we both agree that we want the best outcomes for students? Like, let's let's find some common ground we can stand on and start there. Uh, and I think that's, that's just a useful way of thinking about dealing with um, people you can't seem to, to get get agreement with. Um, and then, you know, as Femi says, not affiliative, you have to set out the boundaries and uh, it, it has to be clear that there is a, there is a, there is a, a sort of a flow of authority sometimes. You know, you are you are the boss, and and these are certain professional standards we need to have. Um, but then I think also one thing that's often just just strikes me is the answers to our problems of how to work with adults are can be found in the way we work with students. Right, we're, we're teachers, and we're, we're we're very good at educating kids and we're very good at working with difficult kids so what techniques do we use there uh, you know it's the same with adults maybe we we try to find out what's going on in their world we engineer success we try to give them some praise just get the door wedged open and then start to to go from there really good advice absolutely loving this this is fantastic and i think one of the very small yeah, quick, quick last thing is to try if possible and i think you think you might say this matt from saying things to the department or to people that aren't true, you know? So saying something like, um, you know, on your keyboard at sort of 8 p.m. on a Friday evening, hi guys, I came around the department today, period five, last period of the day, every single lesson I saw was top quality, fantastic, kids were, when it just wasn't what you saw, but you're trying to sort of G everyone up and get everyone thinking positive, when actually, that actually does the opposite in areas where there's real need for change and improvement just to kind of it just kind of drags everyone along with it so we're all great here and, and it's 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 tempting to do because you want to be the leader of this positive team where everyone's told they're great but i don't think it's actually that helpful that's good that's a good one right number four i'm intrigued by this because this is this is high up on my reasons for not wanting to be ahead of department how do you deal with parental complaints well, <laughs> we did, we actually just did a pod on that, um, interestingly. So we, we got into quite a bit of detail there. But yeah. I guess the top level overview for me is um, having iterated a process through uh, that, that, that wasn't especially um, uh, effective. Where I've got to now is, is something like the following procedure. Um, so at, at the, at, for, the, for the colleagues, it's a case of just they know this in advance. So when a, when a complaint comes in, I will let you know. 
unless it's not appropriate to do that, but most of the time it is, I will let you know. And if possible, if appropriate, I will share the complaint with you. Now, the, the one situation where it wouldn't be appropriate is kind of the whistleblower thing. So it, especially if it's come from a child, but let's just say that, that that's not a concern in this issue. Um, and then the, the second thing is um, I'll get their, their point of view. I'll have a discussion about it. And then the follow on from there, maybe I may need to do some more um, you know, investigation. I may need to come and see a lesson. I may need to speak to some other kids. I may need to get more information. Um, so, so that's the sort of process on the on the on the staff end. On the parent end, I make every effort to respond to them very quickly. So as soon as I can, I'll get back to them, and that will just be saying, um, I'll look into it, and I'll be back in touch with you at by X point. I don't let it fester. Um, and the key thing for me in that conversation is just being um, being genial with them and, and thanking them really. You know, Femi's got a line which he, he's, he shared recently, which is that your, your son or daughter is lucky to have you. And, and my, my line is, is kind of thank you for taking an interest in your child's education. I know it's not easy to raise a complaint and you're absolutely right to do so because we all want the best for the child. I'm not validating your complaint. I'm going to look into it, and I'm not defending the teacher, or you know, either. I'm not. I'm not going to make any assumptions, but you know, it's it's a completely professional engagement with that uh, complaint. And I think what that does is it just, even if the outcome is I I can't actually do very much. You want your child to change sets or something like that, and I just can't. Uh, you know, that's not possible. Um, parents usually okay. Well. Thank you for hearing me out, for listening carefully, and for doing your best to, to figure it out, you know? Yeah. Uh, I've probably got two things I've just noted down there as, as Matt was talking. Um, one is get around the department enough that you know what's normally going on. If you regularly walk the shop floor, you will already be aware of anything that comes in that is, that is noteworthy and it really needs your attention. And it might be that you are already doing something about that. So you're already aware of it and you're already doing something to try and change the, the practice that, that's being picked up on or, or, or whatever. So get around. You don't want a situation where it's just completely all, just all news to me. <laughs> like, oh, really? As if, you're, as if you're some kind of person that sort of works remotely from the, from the school. You're not even in there. And you're just kind of, oh, okay. no, that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't be. You, should be. you should know what's going on in the department. And the other one is don't unreservedly take the position of the pupil or the member of staff don't kind of like always have this kind of like oh that is that right mrs smith i will sort that should not have happened i'll tell him he needs to make sure that he's set home don't always take that because people will notice that and it isn't always the right approach to take but at the same time and actually this is probably one i see more often don't just always take the point god these parents i i told her that you know we're all allowed to forget to but, you know sometimes they are right quite often they are right so Taking either stance, I think it's, you know, you once Matt, on a pod said, you know, this idea of I don't have a horse in this race. You know, yeah, this isn't yeah. my kind of like, I'm just here to find out what's going on. Yeah. And I'll respond to that as was not. I'm here to defend my team. My team never get it wrong. Sometimes they do, as, as do you, as do I. Um, so that's important, I think, as well. Yeah. Wow. This is great. Absolutely brilliant advice. This brilliant. Um, right. Fifth challenge. <laughs> Again, another one I'm intrigued by is about setting. Now, 
there's a couple of angles we could we could tackle this at. There's the whole issue of mm-hmm. whether we should set kids in the first place and how we assign kids to sets. But the thing I'm particularly, and feel free to discuss that, by the way, but the thing I'm particularly interested in is how, how as head of department you allocate the sets to different teachers. And because I see lots of schools of thought on this, and often it is determined by kind of short-term needs versus what's best for the long-term. And what I mean by that is, in most of the schools I visit, your strongest teachers are on your key stage four classes, and key stage three is a bit of a free-for-all, where it's split classes, non-specialists. And everyone knows it's a bad idea because those key stage three kids are going to be the ones in key stage four who need the strongest teachers and so on and so forth. But how on earth do you break that cycle? Because if you if you make a big change, key stage four are going to take a hit and that's the one that schools and teachers are judged by and so on. So setting is a whole minefield. It's up to you how you want to tackle it, but I definitely want to get to the, 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 the nub of how you assign sets to teachers and which sets do you take yourself? Because that's that's another one that I see lots of different um, approaches to this from heads of department. Yeah, well, yeah. I, yeah, I'll maybe start with that. So when I think when you, well, when so when I joined as head of department, I did two things really. One is I took 10 set one uh, myself and my thinking there was A-level recruitment. I just wanted to. I wanted to. I wanted to grow the A-level recruitment. It was an, an issue with the department I'd identified anyway, um, and I, and, and I wanted to be, take on responsibility for that myself. And the other thing I did is I gave myself bottom set year seven, and I wanted to. I wanted to show what a bottom set could achieve over, over, over years, um, and then yeah everything else in between and so then to answer your question about allocating sets i mean once you're in a position right of not having particularly a a full complement of skilled teachers you're up against it whatever you do you know so it's it's a difficult cycle to break and it's completely understandable why the 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 more experienced the more effective teachers are put in key stage four and five um I try to I try to be reasonably fair to teachers uh, to keep a balance over time over one year and over time so that everyone has a mixture of everyone has one top set and a mixture of middle and a, and a bottom um, and that that rotates through but uh, I also um, but I, I also subscribe to you know back in the back in the day before the GCSEs changed you know we the culture was very much you could put your you could put your big hitters on the D's and E's to C's group, right? And you would just get as much kids across that boundary as possible, um, because that's what everything was measured on. Now, if you if you take that attitude, and 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 I'm not getting into whether it's right or wrong, and you apply it to to the the current um, situation, which is Progress Eight, then for for my money, the biggest hitters should be with the biggest number of students. And so it's not about going with one of those middle groups and getting kids across that boundary. It's just like, how can we make sure that FEMI is teaching the biggest number, the greatest number of students um, across the year group? But in reality, I, I don't really subscribe to that way of thinking. So it, it doesn't factor into my my planning. Um, it's more about giving, giving students and teachers a, a range. Uh, and I try to get people to take sets through as well um, from year to year as much as possible. Certainly year 10 and into year 11, um, try to have that consistency. 
I think it's I think it's good for teachers and I think it's good for kids on the whole. There's lots more to say about setting, but, but you asked about that and I'll hand yeah. over to Femi first. I think in terms of deciding what I'm going to take, I asked myself one question initially, and that question is, where am I needed? And I'll give you two examples of that. So when I first started at my school, I personally felt that the 9-7 percentage wasn't high enough, and I knew that we could raise it, and I knew that I had to initially do that myself and lead by example on that. So I gave myself both of the two year 10 top sets. To them, they become obviously year 11 top sets. And then, you know, without sort of blowing, you know, smoke, we, we, we went from 12%, 9.7 to 39%, 9.7. And now we can start talking in, in a department about our success and also maintaining that because we've done it rather than just me talking about that. I think we can, oh, I think we can break record, you know, well, what, why do you think that? We can't. These kids are, you know, unless you've done it, people then start to believe that it can be done. And another example of that has come this year, actually, where I'm just look, looking at two year 10 groups who have had a bit of a difficult experience with staffing, you know, people in and out and that sort of, a few little problems. So I needed then to take those guys through in year 11. So I actually wrote to parents in both those groups and said, this is what the plan is through to the end of year 10. But I guarantee you that I am going to take these groups in year 11 because so to give them some kind of assurance that we're doing all we can this year and next year, I'm guaranteed to you all nine lessons of Fortnite, it'll be me, blah, blah, blah. So those, those are two examples of me saying, where, where am I needed? Um, but in terms of other people, I use actually quite an old, old fashioned, old style, old school approach to this, which um, our head department, Matt, that we worked with in our first school used to use, that I've just kind of always taken forward and still do. It was just, um, she used to just say, um, yes, I'm going to email you out your wish list, which is what classes you want next year. And uh, do do reply and I'll do all I can to put it together. Now, now that's, that's all I do. The one difference in thing that I do that she didn't do is I used to get around, I get around the department a lot. So I know whether or not what that person is asking for is appropriate. Mm -hmm. So if someone says, I want my eights into nines because they're brilliant and they're fat and they're working so well, that actually isn't the case, Craig. I do come in a lot and actually, you know, you feel like you've got a regular relationship with them, but actually it's mainly just banter and I'm actually going to take them off you in year nine. I think they need to go. Whereas if I actually come around, it is brilliant in there and you have got a great relationship and it is like, you know, dynamite teaching, carry on with them, take them through. All I'm going to, all I'm going to get is emails if I take them off you anyway. Um, so why not carry on with them? So I just do the sort of wish list, uh, you know, method, but on the basis of having visited the classes as well. She didn't do that. She just said, well, that's, that's what you want. I'll try and make it work on my spreadsheet. She, she was really old school, but probably used bits of paper on a table to try and make it all fit and work. <laughs> you know, so it's not, it's not just that. It's, it's, it's the right thing for the kids. Um, I've got a, got a couple of things to say as well, but I, I know, Matt, you've, you've a few more things uh, to say as well. So let me just kind of throw this into the mix. What, what about if you've got someone who's just really good at teaching top sets? So doesn't it make sense just to give them top sets all the time? Well, we... Listeners won't won't see this, but Femi and I just turned turned and looked at each other because we've we had a we did a podcast one of our very early ones um, which we called uh, No Such Thing as an A Level Specialist, and we really like got into this topic. and And one of the things is that in my experience, the people who are very good at teaching top sets are also very good at teaching middle ability sets and bottom sets, and actually because they're very good they're very good full stop and actually what i think can happen is that you have people who are good at teaching top sets because 
their behavior management isn't very good. And so they're actually not very good at teaching lower sets. Um, their explanations are not great, but the top of the top level kids are good enough to sort it out for themselves. But their maths knowledge is very good and they're very enthusiastic. So they they can go deeper and they can push kids and the kids that can keep up with them and it might only be two of them in the group or it might be 15, you know, can can keep up with them. But um, to my mind that that it's more that they're not very good at teaching middle and lower groups rather than they are very good at mm. teaching top sets. And quite often, sorry, you're not right, it could be that they are clever and the kids in the class are clever. So the kids sort of allow them their poor behaviour management and pedagogy because they respect clever people. Is that what I say? You know, <laughs> you know, Dr. Smith, though, sir, he's, oh, he showed us this puzzle and he got us, he, we could, he cracked it. Apparently he did it when he was 14 and we're, we're 15 now, so he must be. But actually, how well are you being German? Yeah. Sorry, Carol. Well, no, so, so then, 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 but then the issue you've got is if that person, you sort of help them to become helpless, right? Mm. If you just keep giving them top sets. And not only that, the dynamic in the department, yeah. you know, it's like, well, if they've got the top sets, someone else hasn't. Yeah. And what's that doing for the development of other people? And what's that doing for their development and, um, and the fairness within the department? So I sort of shy away from this idea of anyone is a top set specialist or a bottom set specialist. And actually, just to, to go on, on that one a bit, I've seen that happen where someone's sort of proclaimed as the, as the bottom set, you know, the, the, the whisperer for the for set seven. And actually, I think that can be um, just a way of locking someone in to teach the groups that other people don't want to teach. Uh, and, and actually, perhaps that person isn't really that effective. And and it's also not especially fair, but they I've seen it happen where the the kind of narrative was created that that person bought into yeah. it, and so they would introduce themselves as I'm the bottom set specialist. Yeah, well, you just you're not actually very good. Full stop. But everyone's quite happy to say that you're the bottom set specialist because now you'll teach the bottom sets, and we don't have to. That's right. Um, so I try to keep clear of that kind of idea of a specialism. That's really. And if you are if you are willing to go and have a conversation with somebody about the next stage in their development, so I've got someone in my team now who is amazing at teaching the kind of grade six. You're going to do higher tier, but you're not really higher tier. We're just going to, we're going to teach you the key topics and we'll get you through. He's great at that. And I've been to him and said, I actually want you now to take a top set year nine and take them through. And for the first time in your career, you're going to have to deal with what I call set zero pupils, which are those pupils that are actually so bright, they could be in set zero if there was one, but there isn't, so they're sat in set one. And actually, that's going to be a new challenge for you because you're going to have these people who, for the first time, are possibly even better at maths innately than you are. And that's going to be... And he didn't really want to do that. He's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm your set-free guy. I don't really want that. But actually, that was the next stage in his development, I, I felt. So I went and had that conversation with him and he's going to, he's going to do it next year. That's interesting, yeah. Matt. I, oh, sorry, Matt. I, I do think... Th well, thinking of, about people's development in, in tandem with this is really important. It's, it's you know, it's, it's moving people... You know, it's, again, it's thinking about that longer term view of the department. It's like I might have someone who's maybe not great with top set, maybe. But how are they going to get that experience? Someone someone allowed me to do it the first time through. You know, and it probably wasn't great. It certainly wouldn't have been as good for the kids as if two or three of the other people in the department had, had done it. But I wouldn't have been able to get that experience any other way. Yeah. You know, I think it's worth thinking about members of staff 
Um, and you can just take that as like the, you know, the view over a longer term in terms of what's best for the kids. Final question from me on this, just going back to something I said in the kind of intro to this. Imagine you were in a, you were leading a department in a school where staffing is an issue. You've got non-specialists in there. You're struggling. You've got split classes left, right and center. Is there any way to break that cycle? Would you just do what everyone else does in that situation and just stick all your best teachers in key stage four and just hope some miracle happens at some point that you recruit a full strength team and can sort out key stage three? Or would you be bold and perhaps stupid and actually take some of your strong ones off key stage four, sort out key stage three? What, what do you do in that situation? So tough, well, isn't it? I think it is so tough. And, you know, one of the things I think you have to remember is that whatever you whatever your whatever your principles are we we owe it to these kids yeah. and their families to get them the best onward ticket possible and and unfortunately in, in maths and english that just looks like getting the best grade you possibly can every which way um so i think you have to be you know you have to you have to be particularly strongly grounded if you're going to shift away from putting your best teachers in that scenario on on your year 11 kids i i totally get it like it's it's really difficult but for me um that's that's what i end up doing it's the you know the the it's the year sevens and year eights that get the non-specialists but 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 base it all on effectiveness right don't assume that the um the the pe teacher may not be able to teach a, a middle or low set year 11 class because if he or she has strong pedagogy and knows how to drill kids, infuse them, get them feeling positive about themselves and something that they don't really want to do and get them across the line. Quite often, that's what PT is actually quite good at, you know, getting them out, it's pouring rain, we are going to go out, guys, we are doing rugby, come on. That, they might be able to do that. So so make sure that it's not just based upon this idea of experience and specialism and it's actually based upon what you've seen people do in the classroom. That's a really good point. Really good point. Right, as we move kind of towards the end of this interview, we're going to do some relatively quick-fire reflections. So I've got three reflections for you, and I'm going to ask Matt the first one, then Femi's response to the first one, then back to Matt, and so on. So first one, Matt, for you, what is the most difficult part of the job of being head of department? Yeah, that that that's what we've been talking about. I think with regards to the to the long term supply cover non specialist, um, especially if someone you know I've had the experience of someone going off long term absent, you know, which unfolded over time, uh, that that saps the fun out of it for me. You know, preparing that, those those lessons and then cover and then trying to think, trying to sort all that stuff out. How about you, Femi? I think the most difficult part of the job for me is when you've got big elephants in the room that need addressing and it's so much easier to find a reason why you don't need to address them but actually they do need to be addressed so a good example would be luckily I haven't had this one but I can see it happening you've won a department meeting that you spent a lot of time putting effort into and planning and trying to make it you know useful and engaging and going to benefit the kids and there's some member of the department who's sighing and they're all over the place and they're on their phone and they do a bit of marking and they leave early and and it's everyone's seen it and it and it needs to be addressed and that will need to be you knocking on their door and going and having a conversation that you'd much rather not have you'd much rather just jump in your car and go home to your family or whatever but it does need to take place and i do think that 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 the better you become the more of those you realize need to take place i think actually you might ask a really um, ineffective or inexperienced head department how much that do you do and they might say oh no don't we need to in my team 
probably don't probably don't probably aren't noticing half of it. <laughs> um, so uh, that's that's difficult. That is difficult. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. But it is. But it is. Just very quickly. It is the one thing I see that separates the best senior leaders from the rest. People that do take that as being part of their job, and I am happy and willing to go and have those conversations. And I'm not Mister Affiliative or Mrs Affiliative, and I will go and have do this and get my hands dirty. That's that. If you can do it well, and if you can become skilled in it, you set yourself apart from the rest, in my view. That's great. All right, second reflection, Matt. Over to you. What is the best part of the job? Um, for me, I, I, I'm loving working with adults at, at the moment and coaching. And I've been learning, as I said, Jim Knight's impact cycle has been a huge impact, um, huge influence on me. And this problem that Femi and I have been trying to understand and solve for uh, half a decade or more of of how or more than that how do you how do you move other people forward um is starting to feel a bit more uh tangible a bit more like it might it might be solvable in some cases so that's hugely satisfying for me that's a great one femi for me the best part of the job is when you you see a child taught maths very well by somebody that's not you and you've had a hand in getting that person to a point where they're teaching maths well so you know this man's an example he's got loads of raw materials so it's mostly him but when i was first working with him and he began to be teaching lessons and it was like this is i'd love my daughter to be in this class or my son i this is really good stuff stuff i'm now seeing and you've been part of that journey and you've got that in your team, maybe with two, three, maybe even four members of staff. You know, it probably isn't all of them. It probably won't be all of them, but it's a couple, It's a good amount of them. That's, that, that's I find that really rewarding. In the same way that I initially found, and I still do, it rewarding when a child that you've taught well is doing maths well. That was great initially. It was like, oh yeah, you can solve simultaneous equations, and I taught you. <laughs> um, and I still like that. But it's actually now when it, other people are able to teach the child how to teach them terms equations because of your help. That's great. It's a good one. And the final uh, one, Matt, for you first. Uh, what do you wish you knew when you first became a head of department that you know now? Uh, well, all of it. Um, you want one thing. I think probably, I think the realisation that, you know, when we're, when we're reflecting ourselves... We're working at the edge of our own, the limits of our own knowledge and our own understanding. And, you know, Femi and I would be pushing each other back and forwards right at the limits of, of our ability and our understanding. And it's so easy to then map that out onto other people. And I think my reflection would be, keep it simple. You know, so much of the time it's actually, it's not the detailed, complex nuances that I've been wrestling with that will be helpful for someone. It's something much simpler. You know, it goes back to, we can have a very detailed conversation about sort of department development, but, or, or um, challenging lessons or questioning or resources. But if the kids aren't paying attention, that's the thing. And um, I think what I would say to my, myself in the early days is, you know, keep, look for the, keep, look at it from the other person's perspective, not, try to try to understand it through the experience body of experience that they've got and and help them with the simplest possible solution rather than getting into the 
right out into the weeds of the nuances of a very complex um, you know, problem that you're trying to solve. That's great. Femi? I think um, when Matt and I were first head to the department and our other friend, uh, Simon, who's also a head of the department, and we talk a lot, the three of us, we often have discussions, debates, arguments about things like, you know, when have you put simultaneous equations on the scheme of work? Are you doing four tests a year or three tests a year? Are your tests cumulative or do they just test one topic? And I think we all thought we had the answer on this stuff or our viewpoint was the right one or... No, I don't think... And actually, what I've come around to seeing is that this stuff is kind of like... Adds a few percent either way, maybe, to your end results. And actually, what's much more important is the effectiveness of the people that are delivering the content. And I think we thought that we could design the perfect departments on paper roll them out and then we'll have it so sharp that we'll be able to, it'll just be so good. And then you forget that actually back to old Jim again, he couldn't care less and he doesn't teach what you put in the scheme work anyway. So it doesn't matter how long you spend, you spend preparing it because it's Friday period five and he's, he's played darts, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so, so actually uh, to use a Clive Woodward uh, uh, phrase, the ex-England rugby coach, great teams are made of great individuals. So if you can try and create an environment where people are as strong as possible, then you'll get you'll get you'll get the results. Of course, you've got to have a scheme of work. You've got to have a testing policy. All these things need to be in place. But to make that the the, the, the core of the job and all you focus on and talk about, I think is a is a mistake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic, fantastic. Right. All that remains is your big threes. So for regular listeners, will know this. This is three websites, blogs, books, anything you like that you recommend listeners will check out. Now, have you got a big three each or a combined big three? Uh, I, I've got three, I would say. All right, let's go for yeah, your. Th- we'll go, go for your three first, then. Matt. Let's five. go for it. And then um, <laughs> listeners will know there'll be links to these in the show notes. So go for it, Matt. What's your big three? Well, I, I won't be the first person to say these three. I don't think so. But for me, um, Daniel Willingham's "Why Don't Students Like School" was just hugely influential. Uh, I I've bought about a dozen copies of that book over the year because I just give it to people, um, and I, I. So that's that's up there. Um, recently we spoke to Tom Bennett and I'd read his book. I was a bit late to the party, but, um, running the room. And I just thought like that, that, that was up there as well for me, just really useful, um, grounded in kind of common sense and what works. And I would, if I was starting over as a head of department, I'd want to, I'd want to have read that and be able to point to that and, and give it to people and work through elements with, with people of that. Um, and then I think, you know, it, it, we are talking about being heads and maths here. And I would say your book, I, I read your book. Um, I've had it for, for a few years. Uh, I think it's fantastic. I think, again, the way that you've done it with kind of, here's what I used to do, here's what I used to believe, here's the evidence, here's what I do now, and here's my takeaways, is really helpful for teachers. Um, and so many of the conversations I've had with people over the year, over the years, was trying to move them from those same kind of beliefs, you know, and, 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 and through to, through to the, the kind of things that are backed up by what Willingham would say. Oh, that's great. Okay, so Thank- those, those would be my big three. I think. That's great. Thanks for the shout out there. That's uh, your obligations uh, so sorted there. Thank you. Yeah. For that. And I would <laughs> say on Tom Bennett's book as well, I listen to it on audible whilst I'm doing my running and he narrates it and it's fantastic on um, it's because he, he's a good speaker. It he's speaks fun. really well. Yeah. He? It's, he's, it, he's, he's got a lovely accent. He has. It's yeah. a good book to both read and listen to. I'm a big fan of that. All right, Femi, over to you. What have you got for us? Um, so I'm going to go with the behavior manual. 
Sam Strickland, which I loved. Um, especially, you know, similar to you, I'm sure, Craig. It's it's very busy at school with work and, and teaching. It's very busy at home with a five and two year old. So a, a book that I can pick up and get some good nuggets from quickly is is really really useful, really valuable, and it is a manual. <laughs> you know, you can pick it up and just say, I want to know something about um, starts of lessons. Just flip to that. I only got two or three pages on that, but some real wisdom um, and some real really really useful stuff there. Um, everyone's heard of it, but I'm going to just sing the praises of Mr. Corbett Maths. I taught over Easter on a in a very well known private school on their Easter revision course for five days. So I had eight kids in my class who all needed different things. So one needed to do y equals mx plus c, one needed to do direct proportion, and you know I didn't want to sit and make resources for these kids. All you know, and Corbett Maths, he's he's got it all there for your most basic y equals mx plus c. You know what's you know what's the gradient of this line to some real difficult problem based stuff with answers that all fit perfectly to the questions. It's just it's just everything. I'd go so far as to say that if somebody launched that as a as a as a textbook, people would say, this is incredible. But it's because it's out there and it's free, it's kind of overlooked sometimes. Um so incredible stuff. And then you've got the practice questions which are kind of formatted like an exam. So it's all there and kids can write directly onto it, which we all know they love, rather than having to actually write anything themselves. It's all just there. And answers for that, work solutions. Pretty impressive stuff. Very, very good. That's a good one. Um and then this one, I'm afraid you can't put on your um, show notes. School visits. Go and see schools live. It surprises me how frequently people are willing and ready to talk about literature they've read, courses they've been on, trips to London they've had. But so uh, infrequently do you see people actually really expressing a real interest in this stuff by going to see it live to go and to visit a, a, a Michaela or whatever, if they, you know, that's, that's less common in schools. Whereas I think actually that's, that's where it really lies, the important stuff, because an SLT member coming back saying, I went on this course yesterday and they were all using it. You know, actually I went to a school and saw this happen. It's so, it's so important. So uh, I really do think that's important. Oh, they're great. Fantastic choices. Well, this has been an absolute epic. I knew it would be, but I've enjoyed every minute of this. And I feel we, we, we could have kept going on this one as well. It's yeah. such a complex issue. Yeah. But this has been exactly what I, I like to do on the Mr. Bart Maths podcast, a big old deep dive into this. So there will be links to your wonderful podcast. I, and I'm not just saying this, I'm, you know I'm a big fan of, a big fan of it. Uh, you do, yeah, you, the, you, the way you, you two work together, the way you bring your wisdom to tackle an issue per episode, I think it's fantastic. So there'll definitely be links to, to your uh, your wonderful podcast in the show notes. But for now, Matt and Femi, thank you so much for your time. I've loved every minute of it. So there you have it. There was my interview with Femi and Matt, all about the challenges and the joy of leading a maths department. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Um, I suspected they'd be great guests to have on the show to talk about this and 
for me anyway, they certainly dis- didn't disappoint. Um, I, I learned loads from that. And we recorded this quite late at night, actually. Well, late for me anyway. We started recording at half six and finished about quarter to 11 at night, something like that. Uh, the, the night was coming in. Uh, it was getting darker in my little recording studio here. But um, I, even though I was knackered and we're all knackered, um, I certainly could have kept talking to them all night. Um, there's so much wisdom, so much humility from them, um, so much knowledge and experience as well. And as I say, I really hope that that there was some key insights there, whether you're an existing head of department, whether you're an aspiring head of department, or whether you're simply just interested in in the day-to-day challenges of of, of being a head of department. Now, I'm not going to spend ages on these takeaways because flipping out, this has already turned into an absolute epic. But I just wanted to reflect on on one or two things that I I found interesting. Um, I want to return to perhaps the biggest um, kind of area of disagreement between me, Femi, and Matt, and that was this uh, need for consistency uh, with a desire for teacher autonomy. And I just wanted to, to kind of reiterate my position on this. Um, if you'd have asked me definitely 10 years ago, I'd have said teacher autonomy uh, was, was the way forward. Um, as a young cocky uh, maths teacher, I certainly wouldn't have been wanted to be told you have to use this PowerPoint or you have to use this activity. But in my old age, and certainly with my recent experiences visiting loads of maths departments, I think the more that teachers can be given access to high quality teaching materials, and this may involve worked examples, tasks, activities, and so on, and then allow time and support to think how best to use those materials, I think on the whole, it's going to be a good thing. And of course, the trade-off there is perhaps fewer new ideas come through. Teachers might feel a bit constrained, but I, I, I think the benefits certainly outweigh the costs. What I thought was particularly interesting, and I never made this distinction before, and this is something I'm going to need to dig into and once I've thought about it a bit more, is whenever I think of um, consistency, I think in terms of resources, tasks, activities, PowerPoints, and so on, But it was Femi who made the point that actually the thing that's going to have the biggest impact is not necessarily the task, not necessarily the worked example, but how those things are delivered. And crucially, it goes back, I know I sound like a broken record on this, student participation. So you could take a task or a question and in one classroom, the kids could all be opting out of it. And the teacher, because they've not got strategies or what I would call, call tools of mass participation up their sleeve, the teacher has no idea that things are the, the kids aren't engaging with it, that they're not thinking, they're not understanding. Whereas in another classroom, that exact same task could be delivered in a way that the teacher's regularly getting data, they're regularly assessing their kids' understanding, the kids are participating left, right and centre. So... Perhaps the the shift or the focus shouldn't be when we think about consistency, consistency in terms of tasks and activities. Perhaps it should be consistency in terms of pedagogy and in particular for me, consistency in terms of of participation. And one thing I was thinking, and people hate me for this, but I'll just say it anyway. I think kind of a good thing a head of department could could prescribe is to say to teachers, okay, you've, you've got freedom. If you want to choose your tasks, choose your activities and so on and so forth, that, that, that's all well and good. But one thing in this department that I want to make sure you do every lesson is ask, let's say, four questions at different phases in the lesson where you get responses from all students, not just one or two. And for me, that would be using a mini whiteboard. I think it's the easiest way to do that, the most flexible tool for doing that. You could use a diagnostic question with ABCD cards, but crucially, you want to get responses from every single student 
And then of course the teacher would need to be supported in knowing how to respond to that. What do you do if some are right, some are wrong, where do you go with that and so on. But I think that is, is kind of a good kind of baseline to aim for if you're asking at least four questions where all the kids are responding, because it's going to give you a sense of whether kids have been listening to you, whether they've been thinking hard, whether they understand and so on. So for me, that I think that should be the focus for consistency above or perhaps before we start thinking about using the same tasks, using the same starter structure and so on and so forth. But again, that's me speaking from, um, yeah, just just kind of my thoughts on that. Um, departmental meetings. <laughs> again, I've been looking forward to having a deep dive on this for, for a while now. I absolutely love sitting in departmental meetings. I love the dynamics of departments. Um, it's fun, funny when Femi's talking about the, the kind of bantering that happens and how, you know, you can try and reduce that to get the focus on teaching and learning. But even when you do that, as I tried to explain, there are ways that are effective for discussing teaching and learning and ways that are less than effective. And this this show and tell approach that I see a lot, I just don't think works. I just, I just don't think teachers get a great deal out of it. Maybe a couple of the structures that I described with the doing the tasks and then thinking how you adapt them and writing diagnostic questions maybe could work, but maybe you've got some other ideas that, that will come into play there. Um, and then we've got the issue of, of SLT. Um, and there was two things here that I thought were interesting. Firstly, this idea of dealing with directors from SLT that you don't agree with. And I like the way that Femi and Matt described that, look, if it's a pain, but it's not going to take them too long, it's probably quicker just to do the task, even though it's a complete waste of time, than to spend even more time arguing about not doing it and so on. And I also like the the, the, the thing that they both emphasise that a sign of a, a, well, one sign of a good head of department is if the rest of the staff don't realise what the head of department is doing to shield them from these directives from SLT. They're not moaning about, oh God, you'll never guess what they asked me to do now or any of that kind of stuff. They're just getting it done and allowing maths teachers to focus on teaching and learning in a really positive environment. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and the other one where we talked about helping non-math specialists, particularly SLT, understand the characteristics of high quality teaching and learning in maths. That's something that I, I regularly see um, in the schools that I'm lucky enough to visit. We kind of assume that um, non-specialists may be able to pick up on the subtleties of the things that we do. I use the example of variation theory there. It's, it's only when you try and kind of step outside of, of what it might look like to a math specialist that you realise, yeah, actually that could look like a load of questions that just all look the same and are a bit pointless. And I'm sure there's other examples of things that we do in maths that we do for a certain reason, but sometimes we've just got to make those reasons really explicit. And it's kind of playing the game a little bit, right? But make it really explicit, um, either whether it be in a lesson plan, a departmental policy, or just a casual conversation, just to make sure that whenever somebody comes to watch us or somebody comes to quiz us, they're, they're going in knowing that we have thought about exactly what we're doing and, and why we're doing it. It just saves, saves time in terms of having more difficult conversations and further down the line. So yeah, there's loads more I could reflect on, but I, I think we'll leave it there. Um, again, this will be an episode that I'll certainly revisit. And it'll be one that I recommend with the heads of department that I'm lucky enough to work with and also members of their team who perhaps have aspirations to become heads of department at some time in the future. I think there's so much gold um, gold tucked away in this episode. Um, final thing for me is just a reminder, as I mentioned at the start, um, if you could have a read of my um, 
newsletter post on student participation in lessons. Um, I'm biased, obviously, but I think it's quite a decent post. There's some quite interesting stuff in there. Um, and there's a little survey at the end uh, for you to fill out. It only takes a couple of minutes just for you to reflect on how many of your kids are listening, thinking and understanding at various phases of your lessons. How do you know that? And that will just enable me to identify where the kind of problem areas are for teachers. And then in future newsletters, I can offer some suggestions, some ideas, some resources for, for dealing with those. So there'll be a link to that in the show notes. I'd be so grateful if you could do that. Anyway, all that remains for me to do is to thank Matt and Femi for being fantastic guests. As I say, if you haven't checked out their Beyond Good podcast, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's fantastic. They cover some really great issues. It's normally just Matt and Femi um, talking themselves about their experiences. Sometimes they have guests on. Tom Bennett's been on. Sam Strickland's been on. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just a really good listen. Um, and I'm sure having listened to, to, to them chat away for nearly four hours, if you're not a fan by now, you never will be. Um, so yeah, give that a listen. Um, thank you to podcastthemes.com uh, for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. Um, and the biggest thank you of all is to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on listening and supporting the show. You can become a patron if you want, if you want to get access to the interactive transcript and um, just help support the upkeep of the show. Um, it's, it's fairly, well, I wouldn't say it's expensive in terms of money to produce the show, but at Flippin' Eck, it takes some time. So any support you can give me there uh, would be fantastic. There'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. Got some absolute cracking episodes coming up. Um, I'm so glad to be doing these big long form uh, chats again. It's so good to be back. And thank you for listening. You take care. Bye for now. <laughs>